The following dicta production is a case on appeal from the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan, the Court of Appeal for Ontario, and the Court of Appeal of Alberta. References re Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, 2021, SCC, 11. The judgment of Chief Justice Vaudner and Justices Abella, Moldaver, Karaket Sanis, Martin and Kesser was delivered by the Chief Justice. Part 1. Overview. In 2018, Parliament enacted the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, SC, 2018, here and after the GGPPA. Three provinces challenged the constitutionality of the GGPPA by references to their respective courts of appeal. The question divided the courts. In split decisions, the courts of appeal for Saskatchewan and Ontario held that the GGPPA is constitutional, while the Court of Appeal of Alberta held that it is unconstitutional. Those decisions have now been appealed to this court. The essential factual backdrop to these appeals is uncontested. Climate change is real. It is caused by greenhouse gas emissions resulting from human activities, and it poses a grave threat to humanity's future. The only way to address the threat of climate change is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In the Paris Agreement, states around the world undertook to drastically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. In Canada, Parliament enacted the GGPPA as part of the country's effort to implement its commitment. However, none of these facts answer the question in these appeals. The issue here is whether Parliament had the constitutional authority to enact the GGPPA. To answer this question, the court must identify the true subject matter of the GGPPA and then classify that subject matter with reference to the division of powers set out in the Constitution Act 1867. In doing so, the court must give effect to the principle of federalism, a foundational principle of the Canadian Constitution, which requires that an appropriate balance be maintained between the powers of the federal government and those of the provinces. Below, I conclude that the GGPPA sets minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, pollutants that cause serious extra-provincial harm. Parliament has jurisdiction to enact this law as a matter of national concern under the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause of Section 91 of the Constitution. National concern is a well-established but rarely applied doctrine of Canadian constitutional law. The application of this doctrine is strictly limited in order to maintain the autonomy of the provinces and respect the diversity of confederation, as is required by the principle of federalism. However, Parliament has the authority to act in appropriate cases, where there is a matter of genuine national concern and where the recognition of that matter is consistent with the division of powers. In this case, Parliament has acted within its jurisdiction. I also conclude that the levies imposed by the GGPP are constitutionally valid regulatory charges. In the result, the GGPP is constitutional. Part 2. Reference Question the reference question in each of the three appeals is substantially the same. Is the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act unconstitutional in whole or in part? Part 3. Background. Subpart A. The Global Climate Crisis. Global climate change is real, and it is clear that human activities are the primary cause. In simple terms, the combustion of fossil fuels releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and those gases trap solar energy from the sun's incoming radiation in the atmosphere instead of allowing it to escape, thereby warming the planet. Carbon dioxide is the most prevalent and recognizable greenhouse gas resulting from human activities. Other common greenhouse gases include methane, nitrous oxide, hydrofluorocarbons, perfluorocarbons, sulfur hexafluoride, and nitrogen trifluoride. At appropriate levels, greenhouse gases are beneficial, keeping temperatures around the world at levels at which humans, animals, plants and marine life can live in balance. And the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere has been relatively stable over the last 400,000 years. 
Since the 1950s, however, the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere have increased at an alarming rate, and they continue to rise. As a result, global surface temperatures have already increased by 1.0 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and that increase is expected to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040 if the current rate of warming continues. These temperature increases are significant. As a result of the current warming of 1 degree Celsius, the world is already experiencing more extreme weather, rising sea levels, and diminishing Arctic sea ice. Should warming reach or exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius, the world could experience even more extreme consequences, including still higher sea levels and greater loss of Arctic sea ice, a 70% or greater global decline of coral reefs, the thawing of permafrost, ecosystem fragility and negative effects on human health, including heat-related and ozone-related morbidity and mortality. The effects of climate change have been and will be particularly severe and devastating in Canada. Temperatures in this country have risen by 1.7 degrees Celsius since 1948, roughly double the global average rate of increase, and are expected to continue to rise faster than that rate. Canada is also expected to continue to be affected by extreme weather events like floods and forest fires, changes in precipitation levels, degradation of soil and water resources, increased frequency and severity of heat waves, sea level rise, and the spread of potentially life-threatening vector-borne diseases like Lyme disease and West Nile virus. The Canadian Arctic faces a disproportionately high risk from climate change. There, the average temperature has increased at a rate of nearly three times the global average, and that increase is causing significant reductions in sea ice, accelerated permafrost thaw, the loss of glaciers and other ecosystem impacts. Canada's coastline, the longest in the world, is also being affected disproportionately by climate change, as it experiences changes in relative sea level and rising water temperatures, as well as increased ocean acidity and loss of sea ice and permafrost. Climate change has also had a particularly serious effect on indigenous peoples, threatening the ability of indigenous communities in Canada to sustain themselves and maintain their traditional ways of life. Climate change has three unique characteristics that are worth noting. First, it has no boundaries. The entire country and entire world are experiencing and will continue to experience its effects. Second, the effects of climate change do not have a direct connection to the source of greenhouse gas emissions. Provinces and territories with low greenhouse gas emissions can experience effects of climate change that are grossly disproportionate to their individual contributions to Canada's and the world's total greenhouse gas emissions. In 2016, for example, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan and British Columbia accounted for approximately 90.5% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions, while the approximate percentages were 9.1% for the other five provinces and 0.4% for the territories. Yet the effects of climate change are and will continue to be experienced across Canada, with heightened impacts in the Canadian Arctic, coastal regions and indigenous territories. Third, no one province, territory or country can address the issue of climate change on its own. Addressing climate change requires collective national and international action. This is because the harmful effects of greenhouse gases are, by their very nature, not confined by borders. Subpart B. Canada's efforts to address climate change. Canada's history of international commitments to address climate change began in 1992 with its ratification of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, here and after the UNFCCC. After failing to meet its commitments under multiple UNFCCC agreements, including the Kyoto Protocol and the Copenhagen Accord, Canada agreed to the Paris Agreement in 2015. 
recognizing that climate change represents an urgent and potentially irreversible threat to human societies and the planet and thus requires the widest possible cooperation by all countries. The participating states agreed to hold the global average temperature increase to well below 2.0 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit that increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Canada ratified the Paris Agreement in 2016, and the agreement entered into force that same year. Canada committed to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. Under the Paris Agreement, states are free to choose their preferred approaches for meeting their nationally determined contributions. In Canada, the provinces and the federal government agreed to work together in order to meet the country's international commitments. In March 2016, before Canada had ratified the Paris Agreement, all the first ministers met in Vancouver and adopted the Vancouver Declaration on Clean Growth and Climate Change. In that declaration, the First Ministers recognized the call in the Paris Agreement for significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and committed to implementing greenhouse gas mitigation policies in support of meeting or exceeding Canada's 2030 target of a 30% reduction below 2005 levels of emissions, including specific provincial and territorial targets and objectives. In the Vancouver Declaration, the First Ministers also recognized the importance of a collaborative approach between provincial and territorial governments and the federal government to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and noted that the federal government has committed to ensuring that the provinces and territories have the flexibility to design their own policies to meet emission reductions targets. The Vancouver Declaration resulted in the establishment of a federal provincial territorial working group on carbon pricing mechanisms to study the role of carbon pricing mechanisms in meeting Canada's emissions reduction targets. The working group included at least one representative from each provincial and territorial government as well as the federal government. Its final report identified carbon pricing as one of the most efficient policy approaches for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and outlined three carbon pricing options. One a single-form broad-based carbon pricing mechanism that would apply across Canada, an option that would not be supportive of existing or planned provincial or territorial pricing policies, Two, broad-based carbon pricing mechanisms across Canada, an option that would give each province and territory flexibility as to the choice of instruments, and three, a range of broad-based carbon pricing mechanisms in some jurisdictions, while the remaining jurisdictions would implement other mechanisms or policies designed to meet greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets within their borders. Carbon pricing, or greenhouse gas pricing, is a regulatory mechanism that, in simple terms, puts a price on greenhouse gas emissions in order to induce behavioral changes that will lead to widespread reductions in emissions. By putting a price on greenhouse gas emissions, governments can incentivize individuals and businesses to change their behavior so as to make more environmentally sustainable purchasing and consumption choices, to redirect their financial investments, and to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by substituting carbon-intensive goods for low greenhouse gas alternatives. Generally speaking, there are two different approaches to greenhouse gas pricing. One, a carbon tax that entails setting a price on greenhouse gas emissions directly, but not setting a cap on emissions, and, two, a cap-and-trade system that prices emissions indirectly by placing a cap on greenhouse gas emissions, allocating emission permits to businesses and allowing businesses to buy and sell emission permits from and to other businesses. A carbon tax sets an effective price per unit of greenhouse gas emissions. In a cap-and-trade system, the market sets an effective price per unit of greenhouse gas emissions, but a cap is placed on permitted emissions. Both approaches put a price on greenhouse gas emissions. 
I also find it worthwhile to note that while carbon tax is the term used among policy experts to describe greenhouse gas pricing approaches that directly price greenhouse gas emissions, it has no connection to the concept of taxation as understood in the constitutional context. Building on the Working Group's final report, the federal government released the Pan-Canadian Approach to Pricing Carbon Pollution in October 2016. In it, the federal government introduced a pan-Canadian benchmark for carbon pricing and stated the benchmark's underlying principles, two of which were that carbon pricing should be a central component of the pan-Canadian framework and that the overall approach should be flexible and recognize carbon pricing policies already being implemented or developed by provinces and territories. The pan-Canadian approach also set out the criteria for the pan-Canadian benchmark that would be used for determining acceptable minimum carbon pricing systems. Provinces and territories would have the flexibility to implement, by 2018, one of two carbon pricing systems with a common broad scope and legislated increases in stringency. A federal backstop carbon pricing system would be implemented in jurisdictions that either requested it or failed to implement a system that met the benchmark. In December 2016, based on the Pan-Canadian approach, the federal government released the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change. In it, the federal government reaffirmed the principles expounded in the Vancouver Declaration and the Pan-Canadian Approach, and outlined in greater detail the criteria of the Pan-Canadian Benchmark for Carbon Pricing. As in the Pan-Canadian Approach, the Pan-Canadian Framework required every province and territory to have one of two carbon pricing systems in place by 2018, a carbon tax or carbon levy system similar to the ones that had already been implemented in British Columbia and Alberta, or a cap-and-trade system similar to the ones that had been implemented in Ontario, and Quebec. All carbon pricing systems had to have a common broad scope and to increase in stringency over time. All revenues from the carbon pricing system would remain in the jurisdiction of origin. A federal backstop pricing system would apply only in jurisdictions that requested it, that had no carbon pricing system or that had an insufficiently stringent carbon pricing system. All revenues from the federal system would be returned to the jurisdiction of origin. On the day the federal government released the Pan-Canadian Framework, it was adopted by eight provinces, including Ontario and Alberta, and by all three territories. Manitoba adopted the framework in February 2018, but Saskatchewan has not done so yet. Later in 2018, Ontario, Alberta and Manitoba withdrew their support from the Pan-Canadian Framework. In May 2017, after the release of the Pan-Canadian Framework, the federal government published the technical paper on the federal carbon pricing backstop. This paper provided further details, outlined the components of the proposed federal carbon pricing system and sought feedback from stakeholders. The federal government then published documents entitled Guidance on Pan-Canadian Carbon Pollution Pricing Benchmark in August 2017 and Supplemental Benchmark Guidance in December 2017, which further detailed the scope of the greenhouse gas emissions to which the carbon pricing system would apply as well as the minimum legislated increases in stringency. On the day the Supplemental Benchmark Guidance document was released, the Federal Minister of Finance and Minister of Environment and Climate Change wrote to their provincial and territorial counterparts to reaffirm Canada's commitment to carbon pricing under the Pan-Canadian Framework. The letter requested the provincial and territorial ministers to explain how they would be implementing carbon pricing and also outlined the next steps in the federal government's process to price carbon. In the context of this process, the GGPPA was introduced in Parliament as Part 5 of Bill C-74, an act to implement certain provisions of the budget, and it received royal assent on June 21, 2018. In the lead-up to the introduction of the GGPPA, the federal government had published further guidance on the components of the proposed federal carbon pricing system. Subpart C. Provincial Action on Climate Change.
At the time the Pan-Canadian framework was released, most of the provinces and territories had already taken significant actions to address climate change, including rehabilitating forests, developing low-carbon fuels, capping emissions for oil sands projects in the electricity sector, regulating methane emissions, closing fossil-fueled and coal-fired electricity generating stations, and investing in renewable energy and transportation. British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario and Quebec were the only provinces with carbon pricing systems. All the other provinces and territories, except Saskatchewan and Manitoba, had indicated that they planned to implement either a carbon tax or levy system or a cap-and-trade system. Despite the actions that had been taken, Canada's overall greenhouse gas emissions had decreased by only 3.8% between 2005 and 2016, which was well below its target of 30% by 2030. Over that period, greenhouse gas emissions had decreased in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and Yukon, but had increased in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland and Labrador, Northwest Territories and Nunavut. Illustrative of the collective action problem of climate change, between 2005 and 2016, the decreases in greenhouse gas emissions in Ontario, Canada's second largest greenhouse gas emitting province, were mostly offset by increases in emissions in two of Canada's five largest emitting provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan. Canada's remaining emissions reduction between 2005 and 2016 came from two of Canada's remaining five largest emitting provinces, Quebec and British Columbia, as well as from decreases in greenhouse gas emissions of over 10%, well above Canada's 3.8% overall greenhouse gas emissions reduction, in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and Yukon. Part 4. The GGPPA. The GGPPA came into force on June 21, 2018. Subpart A. Basic Architecture of the GGPPA. The GGPPA comprises four parts and four schedules. Part 1 of the GGPPA establishes a fuel charge that applies to producers, distributors and importers of various types of carbon-based fuel. Part 2 sets out a pricing mechanism for industrial greenhouse gas emissions by large emissions-intensive industrial facilities. Part 3 authorizes the Governor and Council to make regulations providing for the application of provincial law concerning greenhouse gas emissions to federal works and undertakings, federal land and indigenous land located in that province, as well as to internal waters located in or contiguous with the province. And Part 4 requires the Minister of the Environment to prepare an annual report on the administration of the GGPPA and have it tabled in Parliament. Only the first two parts and the four schedules are at issue in these appeals. The parties do not challenge the constitutionality of Parts 3 and 4 of the GGPPA. Because the GGPPA operates as a backstop, the greenhouse gas pricing mechanism described in Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPPA does not automatically apply in all provinces and territories. A province or territory will only be subject to Part 1 or 2 of the GGPPA if the Governor and Council determines that its greenhouse gas pricing mechanism is insufficiently stringent. However, the GGPPA itself always applies in the sense that provincial and territorial greenhouse gas pricing mechanisms are always subject to assessment to ensure they are sufficiently stringent. At the time of the hearing of these appeals, Ontario, New Brunswick, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Yukon and Nunavut were subject to both Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPPA. Alberta was subject only to Part 1, and Prince Edward Island only to Part 2. After the hearing, the GGPPA was amended such that Part 1 no longer applies to New Brunswick. The federal government has also announced that Ontario will be subject only to Part 1, but the GGPPA has not yet been amended to reflect this announcement. Subpart B. The Preamble. 
The GGPP has a 16-paragraph preamble that sets out the background to and purpose of the legislation. This preamble can helpfully be divided into five parts in which the following points are articulated. 1. Greenhouse gas emissions contribute to global climate change, and that change is already affecting Canadians and poses a serious risk to the environment, to human health and safety and to economic prosperity both in Canada and internationally. 2. Canada has committed internationally to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by ratifying the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement. 3. It is recognized in the pan-Canadian framework that climate change requires immediate action by the federal, provincial and territorial governments, and greenhouse gas pricing is a core element of that framework. 4. Behavioral change that leads to increased energy efficiency is necessary to take effective action against climate change. And 5. The purpose of the GGPPA is to implement stringent pricing mechanisms designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by creating incentives for that behavioral change. In the fifth part of the preamble, it is recognized that some provinces are developing or have implemented greenhouse gas pricing systems. However, it is also acknowledged that the absence of such systems in some provinces and a lack of stringency in some provincial pricing systems could contribute to significant harm to the environment, to human health and safety and to economic prosperity. The preamble concludes with a statement that it is accordingly necessary to create a federal greenhouse gas pricing system in order to ensure that greenhouse gas pricing applies broadly in Canada. Subpart C. Part 1. Fuel Charge. Part 1 of the GGPPA establishes a charge on prescribed types of fuel that applies to fuel produced, delivered or used in a listed province. Fuel brought into a listed province from another place in Canada and fuel imported into Canada at a location in a listed province. Part 1 of Schedule 1 contains the list of provinces to which Part 1 of the GGPPA applies. The fuel charge applies to 22 types of carbon-based fuel that release greenhouse gas emissions when burned, including gasoline, diesel fuel and natural gas, as well as to combustible waste. Schedule 2 lists the types of fuel to which the fuel charge applies and indicates the applicable rates of charge for each one. Although the fuel charge is paid by fuel producers, distributors and importers, and not directly by consumers, it is anticipated that retailers will pass the fuel charge on to consumers in the form of higher energy prices. The fuel charge is not payable on qualifying fuel delivered to farmers and fishers or on fuel used at prescribed facilities including industrial facilities to which the pricing mechanism in Part 2 of the GGPPA applies. The fuel charge is administered by the Minister of National Revenue acting through the Canada Revenue Agency. Section 165 of the GGPPA concerns the distribution of the proceeds of the fuel charge. Section 165 sub 2 provides that the Minister of National Revenue must distribute the amount collected in respect of the fuel charge in any listed province less amounts that are rebated, refunded or remitted in respect of those charges, but that the Minister of National Revenue has discretion whether to distribute the net amount to the province itself, other prescribed persons or classes of persons or a combination of the two. The federal government's present policy is to give 90% of the proceeds of the fuel charge directly to residents of the province of origin in the form of climate action incentive payments under the Income Tax Act, RSC, 1985, as provided for in Section 13 of the Budget Implementation Act, 2018, Number 2, SC, 2018. The climate action incentive is a deemed rebate under the GGPP that reduces the amount that must be distributed under Section 165. The remaining 10% of the proceeds is paid out to schools, hospitals, colleges and universities, municipalities, not-for-profit organizations, indigenous communities and small and medium-sized businesses in the province of origin. Simply put, the net amount collected from a listed province is returned to persons and entities in that province.
Part 1 of the GGPPA also provides the governor and council with considerable power to make regulations. For example, Section 166 authorizes the governor and council to make regulations to list or delist provinces in relation to the application of the fuel charge under Part 1 of the GGPPA. Any such regulations must be made for the purpose of ensuring that the pricing of greenhouse gas emissions is applied broadly in Canada at levels that the Governor and Council considers appropriate, and the Governor and Council must, in making them, take into account, as the primary factor, the stringency of provincial pricing mechanisms for greenhouse gas emissions. In addition, the Governor and Council is authorized to make regulations prescribing anything that is to be prescribed or determined by regulation under Part 1. Specifically, the Governor and Council can make regulations in relation to the fuel charge system by, for example, modifying the listed types of fuel and the applicable rates of charge in Schedule 2, or defining words or expressions used in Part 1 of the GGPPA, in Part 1 of Schedule 1, or in Schedule 2. In the event of a conflict between a regulation and Part 1 of the GGPPA, Section 168 Sub 4 provides that the regulation prevails to the extent of the conflict. Subpart D. Part 2, Industrial Greenhouse Gas Emissions. Part 2 of the GGPPA establishes an output-based pricing system, here and after OBPS, for industrial greenhouse gas emissions by large emissions-intensive industrial facilities. The OBPS applies only to a covered facility in a province listed in Part 2 of Schedule 1. Covered facilities include facilities that meet the criteria set out in the Output-Based Pricing System Regulations, SOR, 2019. Under the OBPS regulations, a covered facility is one that meets a specified emissions threshold and is engaged in specific industrial activities. The Minister of the Environment may also, upon request, designate an industrial facility located in a backstop jurisdiction, that is, one listed in Part 2 of Schedule 1, as a covered facility even if it does not meet the criteria in the regulations. A covered facility is exempt from the fuel charge, but it must pay for any greenhouse gas emissions that exceed its applicable emissions limits on the basis of sector-specific output-based standards. This can be done in one of three ways. 1. By remitting surplus compliance units earned by the facility at a time when its greenhouse gas emissions were below its annual limit, or surplus credits purchased from other facilities. 2. Paying an excess emissions charge. Or 3. A combination of the two. The OBPS regulations require that a covered facility's emissions limit be generally calculated on the basis of the facility's production from each industrial activity and an output-based emissions standard in respect of that activity expressed in units of emissions per unit of product. If the efficiency of a facility's industrial processes meets the applicable efficiency standards, the facility will not exceed its emissions limit. It is only where an industrial process is not sufficiently efficient in terms of its production per unit of emissions that a person responsible for a covered facility must provide compensation for the facility's excess emissions. A facility whose efficiency exceeds the standards earns surplus credits, GGPPA, Section 175. Schedule 3 lists 33 greenhouse gases and sets out the global warming potential of each one as defined in accordance with the OBPS, while Schedule 4 sets out the charges for excess emissions. The OBPS is administered by the Minister of the Environment. Section 188 of the GGPPA, which concerns the distribution of revenues from excess emission charge payments, works similarly to Section 165 of Part 1. Section 188 Sub 1 provides that the Minister of National Revenue must distribute all revenues from excess emissions charge payments, but that the Minister has discretion whether to distribute them to the province itself, to persons specified in the regulations or that meet criteria set out in the regulations or to a combination of both. 
the federal government has indicated that these revenues will be used to support carbon pollution reduction in the jurisdictions in which they were collected, but has not yet provided further details. Part 2 of the GGPPA, like Part 1, also provides the Governor and Council with considerable power to make regulations and orders. For example, Section 189 authorizes the Governor and Council to make orders to list or delist provinces in relation to the application of the OBPS in Part 2 of the GGPPA. As with Section 166, any such order must be made for the purpose of ensuring that the pricing of greenhouse gas emissions is applied broadly in Canada at levels that the Governor and Council considers appropriate, and the Governor and Council must, in making it, take into account, as the primary factor, the stringency of provincial pricing mechanisms for greenhouse gas emissions. As well, the Governor and Council is authorized to make orders adding greenhouse gases to, or deleting them from, Schedule 3 or amending the global warming potential of any gas. In doing so, the Governor and Council may take into account any factor it considers appropriate. The Governor and Council also has the authority to amend Schedule 4 by amending an excess emissions charge or by adding calendar years. Finally, the Governor and Council is authorized to make regulations pertaining to a number of aspects of the OBPS, including covered facilities, greenhouse gas emissions limits, the quantification of greenhouse gases, the circumstances under which greenhouse gases are deemed to have been emitted by a facility, compensation, and permitted transfers of compliance units. It is important to understand that Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPPA together create a single greenhouse gas pricing scheme. Part 1 of the GGPPA directly prices greenhouse gas emissions. The OBPS created by the OBPS regulations made under Part 2 of the GGPPA constitutes a complex exemption to Part 1. The OBPS exempts covered facilities from the blunt fuel charge under Part 1, creating a more tailored greenhouse gas pricing scheme that lowers the effective greenhouse gas price such facilities would otherwise have to pay under Part 1. Part 2 thus also directly prices greenhouse gas emissions, but only to the extent that covered facilities exceed applicable efficiency standards. Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPP therefore function together to price greenhouse gas emissions throughout the Canadian economy. Part 5. Judicial History. Subpart A. Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan. The majority of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan concluded that the GGPPA is inter vires Parliament on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. The majority identified the pith and substance of the GGPPA as the establishment of minimum national standards of price stringency for greenhouse gas emissions. Applying the framework from the Queen and Crown Zellerbach Canada Limited, 1988, SCC, they found that the establishment of minimum national standards of price stringency for greenhouse gas emissions is a matter of national concern. This matter is of genuine national importance and has the requisite singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility. Greenhouse gases are readily identifiable and distinguishable from other gases, and minimum pricing standards are distinguishable from other forms of regulation. Each province is vulnerable to another province's failure to adequately price greenhouse gas emissions. Interprovincial cooperation could not be a basis for a sustainable approach to minimum greenhouse gas pricing, because provinces are free to withdraw from cooperative arrangements. As well, recognizing federal authority over minimum national standards of price stringency for greenhouse gas emissions would have an acceptable impact on provincial jurisdiction, because it would limit Parliament's role to pricing and would not threaten the constitutional validity of provincial initiatives to regulate greenhouse gases. Justices Ottenbreit and Caldwell dissented. They concluded that Part 1 of the GGPPA is the result of an unconstitutional exercise of Parliament's taxation power and that the GGPPA as a whole is ultra-virus Parliament. 
greenhouse gas emissions do not represent a constitutionally distinct matter, and the concepts of stringency and national standards should not be used to tease an abstraction out of recognizable matters within provincial jurisdiction. The asserted need for a national standard of stringency is based not on a genuine provincial inability to set such a standard, but simply on a policy dispute. Finally, the dissent concluded that the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction is not reconcilable with the balance of federalism. The GGPPA would deprive provinces of the ability to regulate greenhouse gases within their borders. Furthermore, it would be possible for the power delegated to the executive branch by the GGPPA to be exercised so as to widen the scope of the statute, thus further eroding provincial authority. Subpart B. Port of Appeal for Ontario. The majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario concluded that the GGPP is inter vires Parliament on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. The majority characterized the pith and substance of the GGPP as establishing minimum national standards to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Applying the framework from Crown Zellerbach, they reasoned that this matter is new as it was not recognized at Confederation. It is a matter of national concern, as evidenced by the GGPPA's relationship to Canada's international obligations and by the fact that the statute was the product of extensive efforts to achieve a national response to climate change. The matter meets the singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility requirement. Greenhouse gases are a chemically distinct form ODF pollution with international and interprovincial impacts. The provinces cannot establish minimum national standards to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. No province can control the deleterious effects of greenhouse gases emitted in other provinces or require other provinces to take steps to do so. In assessing the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction, the majority found that the GGPP strikes an appropriate balance between Parliament and the provincial legislatures. Finally, the majority rejected the Attorney General of Ontario's argument that the levies imposed by the GGPP are unconstitutional regulatory charges. The majority found the levies to be valid because they have a sufficient connection to the regulatory scheme based on their purpose of behavior modification. Justice Hoy concurred with Chief Justice Strathy's national concern analysis. Although she characterized the pith and substance of the GGPP more narrowly as establishing minimum national greenhouse gas emissions pricing standards to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In her view, including the means, carbon pricing, in the description of the pith and substance is legally permissible and desirable. In some cases, as here, Parliament's choice of means may be so central to the legislative objective that the main thrust of the law, properly understood, is to achieve a result in a particular way. Justice Husgraft dissented. He characterized the pith and substance of the GGPP broadly as the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. At the classification stage, he reasoned that the national concern doctrine requires the identification of a new subject matter that is independent of the means adopted in the relevant law. In this case, the proposed matter of national concern is federal authority over greenhouse gas emissions, which fails to meet the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility requirement from Crown Zellerbach. In addition, recognizing federal jurisdiction on the basis of provincial inability to establish a national standard would allow any matter to be transformed into a matter of national concern by just adding the word national to it. The fact that one province's inaction could undermine another province's carbon pricing efforts does not establish provincial inability either. This simply reflects a legitimate policy disagreement. Finally, Justice Husgraft concluded that the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction is incompatible with the federal-provincial division of powers. For a matter to be one of national concern, it must have ascertainable and reasonable limits in order to contain its reach. Subpart C. Port of Appeal of Alberta. The majority of the Court of Appeal of Alberta held that the GGPP is unconstitutional. 
they reasoned that the national concern doctrine can apply only to matters that would originally have fallen within the provincial power respecting matters of a merely local or private nature under section 92 sub 16 of the constitution the doctrine has no application to matters that would originally have fallen under other enumerated provincial heads of power the majority characterized the pith and substance of the ggpp as at a minimum regulation of greenhouse gas emissions this subject falls under various enumerated provincial powers, and in particular the power relating to the development and management of natural resources under Section 92A of the Constitution. Accordingly, the majority reasoned, the National Concern Doctrine has no application in this case. The majority went on to apply the framework from Crown Zellerbach. They found that the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions is not a single, distinctive and indivisible matter and that it would have an unacceptable impact on provincial jurisdiction. The GGPPA intrudes significantly into the province's exclusive jurisdiction over the development and management of natural resources, thereby depriving provinces of their right to balance environmental concerns with economic sustainability. Justice Wakeling, writing separately, questioned the need for the National Concern Doctrine and proposed a significant reformulation of the Crown-Zellerbach framework. He concluded that the GGPPA is ultra-virus parliament. Canada was in fact seeking judicial approbation of the environment or climate change as a new federal head of power. Recognition of such a broad federal power would fundamentally destabilize Canadian federalism. The provinces are already taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and the country is better served when governments at both levels work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions within their own areas of jurisdiction. Justice Feehan, dissenting, found that the GGPP is valid on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. He identified the pith and substance of the law as follows. To effect behavioral change throughout Canada leading to increased energy efficiencies by the use of minimum national standards necessary and integral to the stringent pricing of greenhouse gas emissions. He found that this is a new matter or a matter of national concern, and that it is single, distinctive, and indivisible. The GGPP has a small scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction, since it accommodates existing provincial systems and is designed merely to set minimum national standards in order to ensure equity, as between provinces. The provincial inability test is also met, given that one province's failure to address greenhouse gas emissions would have an adverse effect on other provinces. Part 6. Analysis. Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan challenge the constitutionality of the GGPP on federalism-related grounds. Ontario further argues that the levies imposed by the GGPP are unconstitutional. Canada and British Columbia argue that the GGPP is constitutional on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. Below, I will begin by briefly discussing the foundational principle of federalism. I will then undertake the well-established two-stage analytical approach to the review of legislation on federalism grounds. I will first consider the purpose and effects of the GGPP with a view to characterizing the subject matter, the pith and substance, of the statute. Then I will classify the subject matter of the GGPP with reference to federal and provincial heads of power under the Constitution in order to determine whether it is inter vires Parliament, and therefore valid. Finally, independently of the jurisdiction issue, I will consider the constitutionality of the levies imposed by the GGPP. Subpart A. Principle of Federalism. Federalism is a foundational principle of the Canadian Constitution. It was a legal response to the underlying political and cultural realities that existed at Confederation, and its objectives are to reconcile diversity with unity, promote democratic participation by reserving meaningful powers to the local or regional level and foster cooperation between Parliament and the provincial legislatures for the common good. Sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution give expression to the principle of federalism and divide legislative powers between Parliament and the provincial legislatures. 
Under the division of powers, broad powers were conferred on the provinces to ensure diversity, while at the same time reserving to the federal government powers better exercised in relation to the country as a whole to provide for Canada's unity. Importantly, the principle of federalism is based on a recognition that within their spheres of jurisdiction, provinces have autonomy to develop their societies, such as through the exercise of the significant provincial power in relation to property and civil rights under Section 92 sub 13. Federal power cannot be used in a manner that effectively eviscerates provincial power. A view of federalism that disregards regional autonomy is in fact as problematic as one that underestimates the scope of Parliament's jurisdiction. As this court observed in reference re-remuneration of judges of the Provincial Court of Prince Edward Island, 1997, SCC, courts, as impartial arbiters, are charged with resolving jurisdictional disputes over the boundaries of federal and provincial powers on the basis of the principle of federalism. Although early Canadian constitutional decisions by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council applied a rigid division of federal-provincial powers as watertight compartments, this court has favoured a flexible view of federalism, what is best described as a modern form of cooperative federalism, that accommodates and encourages intergovernmental cooperation. That being said, the court has always maintained that flexibility and cooperation, while important to federalism, cannot override or modify the constitutional division of powers. As the court remarked in reference Re-Securities Act, 2011, SCC, the dominant tide of flexible federalism, however strong its pull may be, cannot sweep designated powers out to sea, nor erode the constitutional balance inherent in the Canadian federal state. It is in light of this conception of federalism that I approach this case. Subpart B. Characterization of the GGPPA. Sub-subpart 1. Overarching Principles. At the first stage of the division of powers analysis, a court must consider the purpose and effects of the challenged statute or provision in order to identify its pith and substance, or true subject matter. The court does so with a view to identifying the statute's or provision's main thrust, or dominant or most important characteristic. To determine the purpose of the challenged statute or provision, the court can consider both intrinsic evidence, such as the legislation's preamble or purpose clauses, and extrinsic evidence, such as Hansard or minutes of parliamentary committees. In considering the effects of the challenged legislation, the court can consider both the legal effects, those that flow directly from the provisions of the statute itself, and the practical effects, the side effects that flow from the application of the statute. The characterization process is not technical or formalistic. A court can look at the background and circumstances of a statute's enactment as well as at the words used in it. Three further points with respect to the identification of the pith and substance are important here. First, the pith and substance of a challenged statute or provision must be described as precisely as possible. A vague or general description is unhelpful, as it can result in the law being superficially assigned to both federal and provincial heads of powers or may exaggerate the extent to which the law extends into the other level of government's sphere of jurisdiction. However, precision should not be confused with narrowness. Instead, the pith and substance of a challenged statute or provision should capture the law's essential character in terms that are as precise as the law will allow. It is only in this manner that a court can determine what the law is in fact all about. Second, it is permissible in some circumstances for a court to include the legislative choice of means in the definition of a statute's pith and substance, as long as it does not lose sight of the fact that the goal of the analysis is to identify the true subject matter of the challenged statute or provision. In the courts below, a central issue was the permissibility of including the means of the statute in the definition of the subject matter of the GGPPA. In Ward and Canada, Attorney General, 2022, SCC, and other cases, this court cautioned against confusing the purpose of the legislation with the means used to carry out that purpose. 
However, those cases did not establish a blanket prohibition on considering the means in characterizing the pith and substance of a law. Rather, they stand for the basic proposition that parliaments or a provincial legislature's choice of means is not determinative of the legislation's true subject matter, although it may sometimes be permissible to consider the choice of means in defining a statute's purpose. This court has in fact frequently included references to legislative means when defining the pith and substance of laws. And there may be cases in which an impugned statute's dominant characteristic or main thrust is so closely tied to its means that treating the means as irrelevant to the identification of the pith and substance would make it difficult to define a matter of a statute or a provision precisely. In such a case, a broad pith and substance that does not include the means would be the very type of vague and general characterization, like health or the environment, that this court described as unhelpful in De Gagnier Transport Incorporated and Wurzilla Canada Incorporated, 2019, SCC. Even this court's jurisprudence on the national concern doctrine illustrates that there is nothing impermissible about defining a matter with reference to the legislative means. In Monroe and National Capital Commission, 1966, SCC, the court defined the matter in terms of both the overarching objective, ensuring that the nature and character of the seat of the government of Canada may be in accordance with its national significance, and the legislative means for achieving this objective, development, conservation and improvement of the national capital region. Similarly, in Crown Zellerbach, the court did not define the matter of the statute broadly in terms of marine pollution. The definition of the matter was in fact a combination of the overarching purpose, controlling marine pollution, and the particular means that had been chosen, controlling the dumping of substances into the sea. Justice Lafore, dissenting, pointed out that regulating the dumping of substances into the sea was only one of multiple means to control marine pollution, given that pollution could also enter the sea through fresh water and through the air. I therefore agree with Justice Hoy's statement in the case at bar that in some cases the choice of means may be so central to the legislative objective that the main thrust of a statute or provision, properly understood, is to achieve a result in a particular way, which would justify including the means in identifying the pith and substance. Third, the characterization and classification stages of the division of powers analysis are and must be kept distinct. In other words, the pith and substance of a statute or a provision must be identified without regard to the heads of legislative competence. As Justice Binney noted in Chatterjee in Ontario, Attorney General, 2009, SCC, a failure to keep these two stages of the analysis distinct would create a danger that the whole exercise will become blurred and overly oriented towards results. The characterization exercise must ultimately be rooted in the purpose and the effects of the impugned statute or provision. Sub-sub-part 2 application to the GGPPA. In this case, the judges in the courts below, the parties and the interveners have proposed various formulations of the GGPPA's pith and substance. These formulations can be grouped in three basic categories. 1. A broad formulation to the effect that the GGPPA's pith and substance is the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. 2. A national standards-based formulation to the effect that the GGPPA's pith and substance is to establish minimum national standards to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, 3. A national standards pricing-based formulation to the effect that the GGPPA's pith and substance is to establish minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I would adopt a national standards pricing-based formulation of the pith and substance of the GGPPA. In my view, the true subject matter of the GGPPA is establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Allow me to explain why. Section A. Intrinsic Evidence. This court has frequently used a statute's title as a tool for the purposes of characterization. However, a statute's title is not determinative in the pith and substance analysis. 
In the case at bar, the statute is titled Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. Its long title is an act to mitigate climate change through the pan-Canadian application of pricing mechanisms to a broad set of greenhouse gas emission sources and to make consequential amendments to other acts. Both of these titles confirm that the purpose of the GGPPA is more precise than the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. As the long title makes clear, the true subject matter of the GGPPA is not just to mitigate climate change, but to do so through the pan-Canadian application of pricing mechanisms to a broad set of greenhouse gas emission sources. The short title also makes it clear that the GGPPA is concerned not simply with regulating greenhouse gas emissions, but with pricing them, as the statute is titled the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. Just as Chief Justice Lemaire found in the Queen and Swain, 1991, SCC, it is in the instant case clear even from the title of the GGPPA that its main thrust is national greenhouse gas pricing, not, more broadly, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Likewise, the preamble of the GGPPA confirms that its subject matter is national greenhouse gas pricing. In general, Preambles are useful in constitutional litigation in order to illustrate the mischief the legislation is designed to cure and the goals Parliament sought to achieve. Although a preamble is not conclusive or determinative, it can be a useful tool in interpreting the purpose of a statute or a provision. It is clear from reading the preamble as a whole that the focus of the GGPP is on national greenhouse gas pricing. The preamble begins with a review of the contribution of greenhouse gas emissions to global climate change, of the impact of climate change on, and the risks it poses to Canada and Canadians, and of the international commitments made by Canada in the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It then focuses on establishing a minimum national standards greenhouse gas pricing scheme. It identifies greenhouse gas pricing as a core element of the pan-Canadian framework, and recognizes that climate change requires immediate collective action to promote behavioral change which leads to increased energy efficiency. After that, pricing mechanisms are commented on at length. In particular, it is noted that some provinces are developing or have implemented greenhouse gas pricing systems, but that the absence of such systems or a lack of stringency in some provincial greenhouse gas pricing systems could contribute to significant harm to the environment and to human health. The preamble concludes with a statement that a national greenhouse gas pricing scheme is accordingly necessary in order to ensure that, taking provincial pricing systems into account, greenhouse gas emissions pricing applies broadly in Canada. Furthermore, the mischief the GGPPA is intended to address is clearly identified in the preamble, the profound nationwide harm associated with a purely interprovincial approach to regulating greenhouse gas emissions. In reference Re-Firearms Act, 2000, SCC, the court stated that the mischief approach, one in which a court considers the problem a statute is intended to address, is one way to determine the purpose of impugned legislation. In the instant case, the preamble shows that the law is intended to address the significant deleterious effects on the environment, including its biological diversity, on human health and safety and on economic prosperity that could result from the absence of greenhouse gas emissions pricing in some provinces and a lack of stringency in some provincial greenhouse gas emissions pricing systems. In Parliament's eyes, the relevant mischief is not greenhouse gas emissions generally, but rather the effects of the failure of some provinces to implement greenhouse gas pricing systems or to implement sufficiently stringent pricing systems, and the consequential failure to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across Canada. To address this mischief, the GGPP establishes minimum national standards for greenhouse gas pricing that apply across Canada, setting a greenhouse gas pricing floor across the country. Section B. Extrinsic Evidence 
In considering extrinsic evidence, a court may consider the statute's legislative history, the events leading up to its enactment, for example, as well as government policy papers and legislative debates, in order to determine what the legislative purpose is. In the case at bar, the extrinsic evidence confirms that the main thrust of the GGPPA is establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. First, it can be seen from the events leading up to the enactment of the GGPPA and from government policy papers that there was a focus on greenhouse gas pricing and establishing a national greenhouse gas pricing benchmark, and that greenhouse gas pricing is a distinct portion of the field of governmental responses to climate change. In the Paris Agreement, states made general international commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They are not required to adopt greenhouse gas pricing systems, rather, they are free to choose their preferred means. Immediately after the adoption of the Paris Agreement, however, the First Ministers endorsed the Vancouver Declaration, in which they recognized that governments in Canada and around the world were using carbon pricing mechanisms to combat climate change, and Canada and the provinces committed to adopting a broad range of domestic measures, including carbon pricing mechanisms in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Moreover, the signers of the Vancouver Declaration clearly recognized carbon pricing as a distinct aspect of the field of governmental responses to climate change by establishing a working group on carbon pricing mechanisms that was independent of other working groups on clean technology, innovation and jobs, on specific opportunities for mitigation of climate change, and on adaptation to climate change and climate resilience. The Working Group on Carbon Pricing Mechanisms was established to explore the role of carbon pricing mechanisms in meeting Canada's greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets under the Paris Agreement. In its final report, the Working Group identified carbon pricing as one of the most efficient policy approaches for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and advocate for broad-based carbon pricing mechanisms across Canada that would give each province and territory flexibility on instrument choice. The federal government then endorsed this recommendation in both the Pan-Canadian approach and the Pan-Canadian framework, and the Pan-Canadian approach introduced a federal benchmark for carbon pricing. Each province and territory would have flexibility to implement either a direct or an indirect carbon pricing system that would have a common scope to ensure effectiveness and minimize interprovincial competitiveness impacts, while a federal backstop, a direct carbon pricing system, would apply only in jurisdictions that did not meet the federal benchmark. This approach would ensure that greenhouse gas pricing would be applied across the Canadian economy, and it would recognize greenhouse gas pricing policies already implemented or being developed by provinces or territories. The Pan-Canadian framework reaffirmed the Pan-Canadian approach and outlined the federal benchmark for carbon pricing in greater detail. In the Pan-Canadian framework, the federal government reiterated the need for a regulatory framework for carbon pricing that priced greenhouse gas emissions across the Canadian economy, highlighted the federal commitment to ensuring that the provinces and territories have the flexibility to design their own policies and programs to meet emission reductions targets and stated that the purpose of the federal benchmark was to preserve the flexibility of the provinces and territories to design their own greenhouse gas pricing policies. Each province or territory would have flexibility to implement a direct or indirect greenhouse gas pricing system within its borders. A federal direct greenhouse gas pricing backstop would apply in jurisdictions that did not meet the benchmark. In my view, it is clear from the Working Group's final report, the Pan-Canadian approach and the Pan-Canadian framework that the federal government's intention was not to take over the field of regulating greenhouse gas emissions, or even that of greenhouse gas pricing, but was, rather, to establish minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency for greenhouse gas emissions through a federally imposed national direct greenhouse gas pricing backstop, without displacing provincial and territorial jurisdiction over the choice and design of pricing instruments. 
courts should generally hesitate to attribute to Parliament an intention to occupy an entire field. In the instant case, this statement rings all the more true because the extrinsic evidence of the lead-up to the enactment of the GGPPA reveals a process of federal-provincial-territorial cooperation in which the federal government's goal was a system where the provincial and territorial governments would be free to design and implement their own greenhouse gas pricing programs. Second, it can also be seen from the legislative debates leading up to the GGPPA that the focus of the statute was not broadly on regulating greenhouse gas emissions or establishing minimum national standards to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but was, rather, on establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency. During the parliamentary debate on the GGPPA, the then Minister of Environment and Climate Change, the Honorable Catherine McKenna, indicated that pricing carbon pollution was central to any credible climate plan and was a major contributor to helping Canada meet its climate targets under the Paris Agreement. The then Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Jonathan Wilkinson, echoed these comments. He observed that, to ensure that a national pollution pricing system can be implemented across the country, the government promised to set a regulated federal floor price on carbon. What is more, he identified carbon pricing as a distinct part of the field of governmental responses to climate change, stating that the focus of the pricing of carbon pollution is to actually incent choices that drive people toward more efficient use of hydrocarbon resources so that we will reduce our greenhouse gas emissions over time. It is an important piece of a broader approach to addressing climate change and to achieving our Paris targets. Similarly, before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance, Judy Meltzer, the then Director General, Carbon Pricing Bureau, Department of the Environment, observed that the GGPP was a step in the development of a federal carbon pricing backstop system and that the key purpose of the GGPP is to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions by ensuring that a carbon price applies broadly throughout Canada, with increasing stringency over time. And finally, before the same standing committee, John Moffat, the then Associate Assistant Deputy Minister, Environmental Protection Branch, Department of the Environment, expressed the opinion that the government's goal was to ensure that carbon pricing applied throughout Canada as well as to send a signal to other countries and businesses planning to invest in Canada that Canada was committed to carbon pricing. He also mentioned another goal of the GGPPA, that is, to make a contribution, but not be the sole contributor to attaining the Paris target. Although statements made in the course of parliamentary debates should be viewed with caution, given that the purpose of the statute is that of Parliament, not that of its individual members, such statements can nonetheless be helpful in discerning Parliament's purpose. In the case at Bar, it is notable that both elected representatives and senior public servants consistently described the purpose of the GGPP in terms of imposing a Canada-wide greenhouse gas pricing system, not of regulating greenhouse gas emissions generally. As an aside, I note that in finding that the GGPP is ultra-virus Parliament, the majority of the Court of Appeal of Alberta did not deny that Parliament was concerned with setting a minimum national greenhouse gas pricing standard in enacting the legislation, but they found that Parliament's focus on greenhouse gas pricing was merely a means to achieve its ultimate purpose of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and mitigating the effects of climate change. As I explained above, however, a court should characterize the pith and substance, including the purpose being pursued by Parliament or the provincial legislature. Precisely, the fact that Parliament's purpose can be stated at multiple levels of generality does not mean that the most general purpose is the true one, or the one that most accurately reflects the thrust of the legislation. This court has in fact often declined to attribute the broadest possible purpose to Parliament. When characterizing a matter, a court must strive to be as precise as possible, because a precise statement more accurately reflects the true nature of what Parliament did, and what it intended to do. 
Here, that means not denying that Parliament ultimately intended to reduce greenhouse gas emissions but, rather, recognizing that its goal in enacting this particular statute was to establish minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Section C. Legal Effects A law's legal effects are discerned from its provisions by asking how the legislation as a whole affects the rights and liabilities of those subject to its terms. In my view, the legal effects of the GGPPA confirm that its focus is on national greenhouse gas pricing and confirm its essentially backstop nature. In jurisdictions where Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPPA are applied, the primary legal effect is to create one greenhouse gas pricing scheme that prices greenhouse gas emissions in a manner that is consistent with what is done in the rest of the Canadian economy. Certain fuel producers, distributors and importers are required to pay a charge for fuel and for combustible waste under Part 1. And as I explained earlier, the OBPS created by the OBPS regulations made under Part 2 creates a complex exemption to Part 1. Covered industrial facilities are exempt from the flat fuel charge under Part 1 of the GGPPA, but must pay a charge that applies to the extent that they fail to meet applicable greenhouse gas efficiency standards. Both Part 1 and Part 2 of the GGPPA thus directly price greenhouse gas emissions. Part 1 directly prices the emissions of certain fuel producers, distributors and importers. Part 2 directly prices the greenhouse gas emissions of covered facilities to the extent that they exceed the applicable efficiency standards. Significantly, the GGPPA does not require those to whom it applies to perform or refrain from performing specified greenhouse gas emitting activities, nor does it tell industries how they are to operate in order to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Instead, all the GGPPA does is to require persons to pay for engaging in specified activities that result in the emission of greenhouse gases. As the majority of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan observed, the GGPP leaves individual consumers and businesses free to choose how they will respond, or not, to the price signals sent by the marketplace. The legal effects of the GGPP are thus centrally aimed at pricing greenhouse gas emissions nationally. The GGPP does not represent an attempt to occupy other areas of the field of greenhouse gas emissions reduction that were discussed in the Pan-Canadian Framework such as tightening energy efficiency standards and codes, taking sector-specific action with respect to electricity, buildings, transportation, industry, forestry, agriculture, waste and the public sector, and promoting clean technology innovation. Moreover, because the GGPP operates as a backstop, the legal effects of Parts 1 and 2 of the statute, a federally imposed national greenhouse gas pricing scheme, apply only if the Governor and Council has listed a province or territory pursuant to Section 166 for Part 1 or Section 189 for Part 2. The GGPP provides that the Governor and Council may make decisions with respect to listing only for the purpose of ensuring that the pricing of greenhouse gas emissions is applied broadly in Canada at levels that the Governor and Council considers appropriate and must, in making them, take into account, as the primary factor, the stringency of provincial pricing mechanisms for greenhouse gas emissions. As a result, the greenhouse gas pricing mechanism described in Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPP will not come into operation at all in a province or territory that already has a sufficiently stringent greenhouse gas pricing system. Not only does this confirm the backstop nature of the GGPPA, that of creating minimum national standards of greenhouse gas pricing, but this feature of the statute gives legal effect to the federal government's commitment in the pan-Canadian framework to give the provinces and territories the flexibility to design their own policies to meet emissions reductions targets, including carbon pricing, adapted to each province and territory's specific circumstances, as well as to recognize carbon pricing policies already implemented or in development by provinces, and territories. 
It is notable that the GGPPA does not itself define the word stringency used in sections 166 and 189, but this does not mean that the Governor and Council's discretion with respect to listing is open-ended and entirely subjective. Rather, the Governor and Council's discretion is limited both by the statutory purpose of the GGPPA and by specific guidelines set out in the statute for listing decisions. Specifically, the discretion to list a province or territory must be exercised in a way that is consistent with the statutory purpose of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by putting a price on them, and any decision of the Governor and Council with respect to listing would have to be consistent with the specific guideline of ensuring that emissions pricing is applied broadly in Canada, and would have to take the stringency of existing provincial greenhouse gas pricing mechanisms into account as the primary factor. Moreover, because the GGPPA provides for a legal standard to be applied in assessing provincial and territorial pricing mechanisms, any decision of the Governor and Council in this regard would be open to judicial review to ensure that it is consistent with the purpose of the GGPPA and with the specific constraints set out in sections 166 sub 2 and 3 and 189 sub 1 and 2. In other words, although the Governor and Council has considerable discretion with respect to listing, that discretion is limited, as it must be exercised in accordance with the purpose for which it was given. The Governor and Council certainly does not, therefore, have absolute and untrammeled discretion. Similarly, the Governor and Council's discretion under the GGPP to make regulations modifying the schedules and, in some cases, provisions of the statute itself does not make the pith and substance of the GGPP a broader nor does it permit the Governor and Council to include any substance, material or thing known to mankind in the system under Part 1 or to boundlessly change the coverage of Part 2 of the GGPP by adding gases or redefining what qualifies as a covered facility in a way that is unrelated to the underlying purpose of the statute. Under Part 1 of the GGPPA, the Governor and Council has the discretion to make regulations prescribing anything that is to be prescribed or determined by regulation under that part, including regulations in relation to the fuel charge system, regulations modifying the listed types of fuel and the rates of charge in Schedule 2, and regulations defining words or expressions used in Part 1 of the GGPPA, in Part 1 of Schedule 1, or in Schedule 2. First, no aspect of this discretion permits the Governor and Council to regulate greenhouse gas emissions broadly in any way other than by implementing a greenhouse gas pricing scheme. Second, any exercise of the power to make regulations under Part 1 of the GGPPA is constrained by that part's own words and statutory purpose. Part 1, as its very title indicates, establishes a fuel charge. Any exercise of the regulation-making power that prescribed substances other than fuel or combustible waste would be open to judicial review and could be found to be ultra-virus the GGPPA. Similarly, the Governor and Council could not list a fuel or substance that does not emit greenhouse gases when burned. Any regulation to that effect would be ultra-virus the GGPPA, whose purpose is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by putting a price on greenhouse gases. The Governor and Council also has a discretion under Part 2 of the GGPPA, that is, the discretion to make orders adding greenhouse gases to, or deleting them from, Schedule 3 or amending the global warming potential of any gas while taking into account any factor the Governor and Council considers appropriate, amending an excess emissions payments charge in, or adding calendar years to, Schedule 4, or making regulations pertaining to a number of aspects of the OBPS, including covered facilities, greenhouse gas emissions limits, the quantification of greenhouse gases, the circumstances under which greenhouse gases are deemed to have been emitted by a facility, compensation, and permitted transfers of compliance units. 
First, as with Part 1 of the GGPPA, no aspect of the discretion provided for in Part 2 permits the Governor and Council to regulate greenhouse gas emissions broadly or to regulate specific industries in any way other than by setting greenhouse gas emissions limits and pricing excess emissions across the country. Instead, the OBPS uses greenhouse gas intensity standards to set emissions limits and price emissions beyond those limits in order to create incentives for behavioral change across industries. Industrial entities can determine whether to increase their efficiency or to pay to exceed their applicable efficiency standard emission limits. Second, the power to make orders concerning which gases Part 2 applies to is also limited by the statutory purpose of reducing greenhouse gas emissions through greenhouse gas pricing. If the Governor and Council were to list a gas that does not contribute to greenhouse gas emissions or to indicate a figure for the global warming potential of a gas that was unsupported by scientific evidence, the regulation would be open to judicial review. As for the power to redefine what qualifies as a covered facility, it must be understood in light of the title of Part 2, which specifies that the focus is on industrial greenhouse gas emissions. Any attempt to extend Part 2 to a facility other than an industrial facility would also be ultra-vires the GGPPA and open to judicial review. Section D. Practical Effects. A law's practical effects are side effects flowing from the application of the statute which are not direct effects of the provisions of the statute itself. Where, as here, a court is asked to adjudicate the constitutionality of legislation that has been in force for only a short time, any prediction of future practical effect is necessarily short-term, since the court is not equipped to predict accurately the future consequential impact of legislation. In my view, the evidence of practical effects in the case at bar is not particularly helpful for characterizing the GGPPA. Given the dearth of such evidence, it would be unwise to attempt to predict the economic consequences of the GGPPA. It is, moreover, not for the court to assess how effective the GGPPA is at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Nonetheless, it should be noted that the evidence of practical effects to date is consistent with the principle of flexibility and support for provincially designed greenhouse gas pricing schemes. Practically speaking, the only thing not permitted by the GGPPA is for a province or a territory not to implement a greenhouse gas pricing mechanism, or to implement one that is not sufficiently stringent. The federal backstop greenhouse gas pricing regime in Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPPA does not have a legal effect to the extent that there is a provincial system of comparable stringency in place, whatever its design. For example, the Governor and Council has declined to list Alberta under Part 2 of the GGPPA because Alberta's self-designed technology innovation and emissions reduction system is considered to meet federal stringency requirements. The Government of Alberta has itself described the Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction System as one that is cost-efficient and tailored to Alberta's industries and priorities. Similarly, Part 2 applies only partially in Saskatchewan, because that province has implemented its own output-based performance standards system for large industrial facilities. Part 2 applies only to electricity generation and natural gas transmission pipelines, which are exempt from Saskatchewan's self-designed system. Section E conclusion on pith and substance. For the foregoing reasons, I conclude that the true subject matter of the GGPPA is establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. With respect, I cannot accept the broader characterizations of the GGPPA advanced by the majorities of the Court of Appeal for Ontario and the Court of Appeal of Alberta. Not only is greenhouse gas pricing central to the GGPPA, but Parts 1 and 2 of the statute operate as a backstop by creating a national greenhouse gas pricing floor. In my view, a national greenhouse gas pricing scheme is not merely the means of achieving the end of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Rather, it is the entire matter to which the GGPPA is directed, 
as is evident from the analysis of the purpose and effects of the statute. It is also the most precise characterization of the subject matter of the GGPPA, as it accurately reflects both what the statute does, imposing a minimum standard of greenhouse gas price stringency, and why the statute does what it does, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in order to mitigate climate change. I would pause here to note that my colleague Justice Brown argues that the phrase minimum national standards is an artifice that adds nothing to the pith and substance of the GGPPA. I respectfully disagree. Here, minimum national standards gives expression to the national backstop nature of the GGPPA. In my view, this phrase adds something essential to the pith and substance that goes to the true subject matter of the GGPPA, because the statute operates as a national backstop that gives effect to Parliament's purpose of ensuring that greenhouse gas pricing applies broadly across Canada. Minimum national standards expresses the fact that the GGPPA functions through the imposition of an outcome-based minimum legal standard on all provinces and territories at all times. This contrasts with the proposed federal legislation the court considered in 2011 securities reference, which had not been enacted to impose a unified system of securities regulation for Canada that would apply in all the provinces and territories, but would instead have permitted provinces to opt in, in the hope that this would create an effective unified national securities regulation system. By contrast, the GGPPA applies in all the provinces at all times. It is national in scope. At the same time, the backstop system set out in the GGPPA also gives the provinces flexibility by allowing them to implement their own greenhouse gas pricing mechanisms, provided they meet the federally determined standard of stringency. It imposes minimum standards. In this way, the GGPPA does not create a blunt unified national system. The national greenhouse gas pricing system provided for in it is limited to the imposition of minimum national standards of stringency. Moreover, the legislation in this case is distinguishable from the equivalency provision of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, RSC, 1985, that was considered in the Queen and Hydro-Quebec, 1997, SCC. In that case, the equivalency provision was but one feature of the federal legislation at issue, which had a broader pith and substance of prohibiting acts causing the entry of certain toxic substances into the environment. In the instant case, as I have mentioned, the GGPPO operates as a backstop, the intrinsic evidence, the extrinsic evidence, the legal effects and the practical effects all illustrate that operation as a backstop is the main thrust and dominant characteristic of the GGPPA. In my view, a mechanism that may be a mere feature of one law can be the defining feature of another law such that it goes to that other law's pith and substance. The evidence in this case clearly shows that Parliament acted with a remedial mindset in order to address the risks of provincial non-cooperation on greenhouse gas pricing by establishing a national greenhouse gas pricing floor. I also note here that my colleague Justice Cote finds that sections 166 sub 2, 166 sub 4, 168 sub 4 and 192 of the GGPP are unconstitutional delegations of power to the Governor and Council. I respectfully disagree. First, it is necessary to review the concept of delegation. As this court explained in reference repan Canadian Securities Regulation, 2018, SCC, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty means that the legislature has the authority to enact laws on its own and the authority to delegate to some other person or body certain administrative or regulatory powers, including the power to make binding but subordinate rules and regulations. Delegation is common in the administrative state. As this court further explained, a delegated power is rooted in and limited by the governing statute. The sovereign legislature always ultimately retains the complete authority to revoke any such delegated power. This court has consistently held that delegation such as the one at issue in this case is constitutional. 
Even broad or important powers may be delegated to the executive, so long as the legislature does not abdicate its legislative role. In Hodge and the Queen, 1883, JCPC, the starting point of the jurisprudence on delegated authority, the Privy Council found that the Ontario legislature's delegation of power to a board to regulate and license taverns was constitutional. The Privy Council held that delegating the power to make important regulations did not amount to an abdication of the legislature's role and that the choice and the extent of any such delegation were matters for the legislature, not the courts. Next, in re George Edwin Gray, 1918, SCC, this court affirmed the constitutionality of a very broad grant of lawmaking power by Parliament to the Governor and Council that included a Henry VIII clause, that is, a clause by which Parliament delegates to the executive the power to make regulations that amend an enabling statute. See also Shannon and Lower Mainland Dairy Products Board. 1938, JCPC, in which a broad delegation to the provincial executive by way of a provincial skeletal statute was upheld. This court affirmed and applied regret in reference as to the validity of the regulations in relation to chemicals, 1943, SCC, and in the Queen and Fertney, 1991, SCC, Justice Stevenson, writing for a unanimous court, commented in obiter that the power of Parliament to delegate its legislative powers has been unquestioned, at least since the reference as to the validity of the regulations in relation to chemicals. The delegate is, of course, always subordinate in that the delegation can be circumscribed and withdrawn. This governing law has been consistently applied by courts of appeal. None of the impugned provisions are unconstitutional delegations of power to the governor and council. Sections 166 sub 2, 166 sub 4 and 192 of the GGPP are permissible delegations of lawmaking power to the governor and council to implement parliament's policy choice to legislate a nationwide greenhouse gas pricing backstop. Section 166 sub 2 and Section 166 sub 4 allow the Governor and Council to determine where and to what the fuel charge established, and detailed in Part 1 of the statute applies. Section 192 permits the Governor and Council to make regulations to implement the OBPS established in Part 2 of the GGPPA. Legislatures frequently include provisions with a similar regulation making scope to that of Section 192 in complex environmental legislative schemes. Indeed, it is common for a statute to set out the legislature's basic objects and provisions, while most of the heavy lifting is done by regulations, adopted by the executive branch of government under orders in council. To the extent that the GGPPA delegates to the executive the power to make regulations that amend the statute, such as in section 168 sub 4, this too constitutes a permissible delegation to the governor and council. As I explained above, the constitutionality of Henry VIII clauses is settled law, and I would decline to revisit the issue in this case. Furthermore, the power to make regulations under a Henry VIII clause is not exempted from the general rules of administrative law. Any regulation that is made must be consistent both with specific provisions of the enabling statute and with its overriding purpose or object, and it must be within the scope of and subject to the conditions prescribed by that statute. Therefore, the scope of the authority delegated in section 168 sub 4 is limited by and subject to the provisions of the GGPPA. The Governor and Council cannot use Section 168 sub 4 of the GGPPA to alter the character of Part 1 of the statute, since any exercise of this authority to make regulations that are inconsistent with either the general purpose of reducing greenhouse gas emissions through the specific means of establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency would be ultra-vires the GGPPA and open to judicial review. Moreover, the Governor and Council's power under Section 168 sub 4 can be revoked by Parliament. In the case at Bar, Parliament, far from abdicating its legislative role, 
has in the GGPP instituted a policy for combating climate change by establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency. Sections 166 sub 2, 166 sub 4, 168 sub 4 and 192 of the GGPP simply delegate to the executive a power to implement this policy. This delegation of power is within constitutionally acceptable limits and the general rules of administrative law apply to constrain the governor and council's discretion under all of these provisions. Subpart C. Classification of the GGPPA. Sub-subpart 1. National Concern Doctrine. Canada argues that the GGPPA is constitutional on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. This doctrine is derived from the introductory clause of Section 91 of the Constitution, which empowers Parliament to make laws for the peace, order, and good government of Canada, in relation to all matters not coming within the classes of subjects by this Act assigned exclusively to the legislatures of the provinces, here and after the POG power. According to the doctrine, the federal government has jurisdiction over matters that are found to be of inherent national concern. As Professor Hogg explains, it is residuary in its relationship to the provincial heads of power. Therefore, the National Concern Doctrine does not allow Parliament to legislate in relation to matters that come within the classes of subjects assigned exclusively to the provinces under Section 92. The National Concern Test is the mechanism by which matters of inherent national concern, which transcend the provinces, can be identified. The effect of finding that a matter is one of national concern is permanent. For this reason, a finding that the federal government has authority on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine raises special concerns about maintaining the constitutional division of powers. As Justice Leforey put it in Crown Zellerbach, when the federal government asserts its authority on this basis, the challenge for the courts, as in the past, will be to allow the federal parliament sufficient scope to acquit itself of its duties to deal with national and international problems while respecting the scheme of federalism provided by the Constitution. By grappling with this challenge over time, the courts have developed a workable framework for identifying federal authority on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine in appropriate, exceptional cases and for adequately constraining federal power in accordance with the principle of federalism. Below, I will trace the development of this framework, beginning with a discussion of the origins of the doctrine in Privy Council cases. I will then review how this court has dealt with the doctrine, consistently taking a restrained approach to applying it while gradually developing its legal framework. Next, I will identify and clarify some areas of ongoing uncertainty with respect to the National Concern Doctrine and review the test for applying it. Lastly, I will apply the test to determine whether the GGPP represents a valid exercise of a federal power based on the National Concern Doctrine. Section A. Origins of the National Concern Doctrine. The first two cases in which the Privy Council dealt with the National Concern Doctrine, Russell and the Queen, 1882, JCPC, and Attorney General for Ontario and Attorney General for the Dominion, 1896, JCPC, here and after the local prohibition reference, speak to the potential for expansion of federal power on the basis of the doctrine and to the importance of placing adequate constraints on that power. The issue in Russell was the constitutionality of the Canada Temperance Act, 1878, SC, 1878, a federal statute establishing a local option prohibition scheme, that is, one that required local action in order to come into force in a given county or city. Sir Montague Smith noted that the scope and objects of the law were general, to promote temperance by means of a uniform law throughout the Dominion, and that intemperance was assumed to exist throughout the Dominion. He concluded that the law fell within federal jurisdiction, Parliament deals with the subject as one of general concern to the Dominion, upon which uniformity of legislation is desirable, and the Parliament alone can so deal with it. 
As commentators have noted, the reasoning in Russell appeared to open the door to a potentially unlimited scope of federal power. The next time the Privy Council considered the National Concern Doctrine, it recognized the potential breadth of the federal power as defined in Russell and sounded a strong note of caution. Local prohibition reference concerned the constitutionality of a provincial local option prohibition scheme. The Privy Council accepted that some matters, in their origin local and provincial, might attain such dimensions as to affect the body politic of the Dominion and therefore to fall under federal jurisdiction on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. However, Lord Watson recognized the risk the National Concern Doctrine represented for the division of powers in no uncertain terms. A failure to properly confine its application would practically destroy the autonomy of the provinces. He stressed that federal authority based on the National Concern Doctrine must be strictly confined to such matters as are unquestionably of Canadian interest and importance and urged courts to exercise great caution in distinguishing between that which is local and provincial, and therefore within the jurisdiction of the provincial legislatures, and that which has ceased to be merely local or provincial, and has become a matter of national concern, in such sense as to bring it within the jurisdiction of the Parliament of Canada. The Privy Council upheld the provincial legislation at issue in that case. Applying the double aspect doctrine, it held that provinces could regulate traffic in alcohol from a local point of view where there was no issue with respect to federal paramountcy. The cautious approach urged in local prohibition reference was reflected in the rejection of federal jurisdiction over the regulation of insurance in Reinsurance Act, 1910-1913, SCC. In a majority opinion that was subsequently affirmed by the Privy Council, Justice Duff rejected the idea that the growth of the insurance business to great proportions across Canada should ground the application of the POG power. Justice Duff was alive to the risk that an unconstrained approach to that power could result in a continual expansion of federal jurisdiction over the provincial private sector simply as a consequence of business growth. As Professor G. Ledane wrote before being appointed to this court, although it had been decided in the insurance references that mere growth and extent was not to be the criterion for the application of the general power, the criterion that should be applied was not yet clear. The need to be cautious in applying the national concern doctrine followed from local prohibition reference, but the limits on the federal power were not fully defined. In a series of cases over the next few decades, the Privy Council, searching for a concrete, specific and restrictive criterion in order to limit federal power based on the POG clause, sought to restrict its application of that clause to emergencies. These cases did not satisfactorily reconcile the emergency requirement with the reasoning in Russell and local prohibition reference. The Privy Council ultimately confronted this problem in Attorney General for Ontario and Canada Temperance Federation, 1946, JCPC. In that case, the issue was the constitutionality of a substantially similar successor to the temperance statute that had been considered in Russell. Viscount Simon rejected an argument that the POG power could apply only in an emergency. In the critical passage of his reasons, he stated the test as follows. Quote, the true test must be found in the real subject matter of the legislation, if it is such that it goes beyond local or provincial concern or interests and must from its inherent nature be the concern of the Dominion as a whole, as, for example, in in re-regulation and control of aeronautics in Canada, 1932, JCPC, and in re-regulation and control of radio communication in Canada, 1932, JCPC, then it will fall within the competence of the Dominion Parliament as a matter affecting the peace, order and good government of Canada, though it may in another aspect touch on matters specially reserved to the provincial legislatures. War and pestilence, no doubt, are instances, so, too, may be the drink or drug traffic, or the carrying of arms. In Russell and the Queen, Sir Montague Smith gave as an instance of valid Dominion legislation a law which prohibited or restricted the sale or exposure of cattle having a contagious disease. End of quote.
Some of the examples Viscount Simon listed, such as war, would of course satisfy an emergency requirement. The precise distinction between emergency cases and national concern cases was ultimately clarified some decades later. But the holding of Canada Temperance Federation with respect to national concern is clear, and emergency is not required for a case to meet the national concern test. Instead, the test is whether the real subject matter of the legislation goes beyond provincial concern and is, from its inherent nature, the concern of the country as a whole. On this basis, Viscount Simon firmly established national concern as a distinct branch of the POG power that grounded federal jurisdiction over matters that were inherently of national concern. Section B. Early Application of the National Concern Doctrine by the Court This court stepped into its role as the final Court of Appeal for Canada in 1949. Over the next two decades, there were only two matters that the court, relying on the Canada Temperance Federation test and heeding the concern for provincial autonomy highlighted in local prohibition reference, found to come within federal jurisdiction on the basis of national concern. The first was aeronautics. The second was the development of the national capital region. In the same period, Canadian lower courts identified a third matter of national concern, the control of atomic energy. Ten years after Monroe, the court applied the national concern doctrine again, for the first time in the environmental context. The issue was whether Manitoba could legislate in relation to pollution that originated outside its provincial boundaries but caused damage within them. The majority in the result, in reasons written by Justice Pigeon, held that a province has no authority to legislate in relation to acts done outside the province, even if those acts cause damaging pollution to enter the province. Justice Pigeon recognized that the federal government can legislate in relation to the pollution of interprovincial rivers, which he described as a pollution problem that is not really local in scope but truly interprovincial. The concurring and dissenting judges also endorsed the view that the federal government has jurisdiction over interprovincial rivers. Although none of the judges explicitly referenced the POG power, the application of that power explains the result. In applying Canada Temperance Federation in its decisions, this court confirmed that an emergency is not needed in order for a matter to be of national concern, and offered some incremental guidance on the criteria for identifying a matter that is inherently of national concern. Moreover, although the court did find that the federal government had jurisdiction in a small number of cases in that period, it exhibited the caution and restraint displayed in the Privy Council's approach to the doctrine. Section C. Development of the National Concern Test. The specific parameters of the limits on the federal power began to take shape in Re-Anti-Inflation Act, 1976, SCC, which marked the court's first serious effort to wrestle with the national concern doctrine. The issue was the constitutionality of the Federal Anti-Inflation Act, SC, 1974-75-76, the purpose of which was to comprehensively contain and reduce inflation. A majority of the court upheld the law as a valid exercise of Parliament's POG power on the basis of the existence of an emergency. Although Justice Beats dissented in the result, his views on the national concern doctrine were endorsed by a majority of the court. As in the cases discussed above, Justice Beats stressed the threat the national concern doctrine poses to provincial autonomy. In an emergency case, federal jurisdiction on the basis of the POG power is temporary, but the national concern doctrine involves a finding of federal jurisdiction that is permanent. Justice Beats emphasized that federal jurisdiction over a matter of national concern is exclusive. Thus, if the federal government were found to have jurisdiction over the proposed matter of containment and reduction of inflation, then the provinces could probably continue to regulate profit margins, prices, dividends and compensation if Parliament saw fit to leave them any room, but they could not regulate them in relation to inflation which would have become an area of exclusive federal jurisdiction. If broad subjects such as inflation, economic growth or protection of the environment were found to be matters of national concern, 
the federal-provincial balance would disappear not gradually, but rapidly. In Justice Beetz's view, the National Concern Doctrine does not allow for an erosion of provincial autonomy such as that. After reviewing the jurisprudence, he explained that the doctrine applies only to clear instances of distinct subject matters which do not fall within any of the enumerated heads of Section 92, and which, by nature, are of national concern. Elaborating on the framework for identifying a matter that is inherently of national concern, he found that federal authority based on the national concern doctrine had rightly been reserved for cases where a new matter was not an aggregate but had a degree of unity that made it indivisible, an identity which made it distinct from provincial matters and a sufficient consistence to retain the bounds of form. The court also had to consider the scale upon which the new matter permitted Parliament to affect provincial matters so as to preserve the federal-provincial division of powers. The containment and reduction of inflation failed these tests. It lacked specificity and was instead an aggregate of several subjects, such as monetary policy, public spending and restraint of profits, prices and wages, many of which fell under provincial jurisdiction. Moreover, because its scope was so broad, finding that it was a federal matter would render most provincial powers nugatory. Although Justice Beetz's views on the National Concern Doctrine were not determinative in Re-Anti-Inflation Act, they were subsequently adopted by Justice Ledain in Crown Zellerbach, in which the court gave further structure to the National Concern Doctrine. There were several cases after Re-Anti-Inflation Act in which another consideration was applied to limit the application of the National Concern Doctrine, provincial inability. This test took center stage in Labatt Breweries of Canada Limited and Attorney General of Canada, 1980, SCC, in which Justice Esty endorsed the following statement by Professor Hogg, quote, The most important element of national dimension or national concern is a need for one national law which cannot realistically be satisfied by cooperative provincial action because the failure of one province to cooperate would carry with it great consequences for the residents of other provinces. End of quote. In Labatt Breweries, the brewing and labeling of beer failed the provincial inability test. It was not a matter of national concern transcending the local authority's power to meet and solve it by legislation. Indeed, the proposed matter did not even concern the extra-provincial distribution of beer, but instead related to the brewing process itself. Likewise, in Shader and the Queen, 1982, SCC, the court explained that the treatment of drug dependency was not a matter of national concern, because, unlike the illegal trade in drugs, one province's failure to provide treatment facilities would not endanger other provinces' interests. Bookending this group of cases is the Queen and Wetmore, 1983, SCC, in which Justice Dixon, dissenting but not on this point, rejected regulation of the pharmaceutical industry as a matter of national concern. Justice Dixon referred both to Justice Beetz's framework and to Professor Hogg's formulation of the provincial inability test, and concluded that the matter failed to meet both standards. Prown Zellerbach afforded this court an opportunity to give structure to the national concern doctrine. At issue was the validity of Section 4 sub 1 of the Ocean Dumping Control Act, SC, 1974-75-76, which prohibited the dumping of any substance at sea without a permit. The definition of the word sea in that act excluded fresh waters but included internal marine waters within provincial boundaries. In a split decision, the court found that the law was valid on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. Justice Ledain, writing for the majority, restated that doctrine. After surveying the jurisprudence, he set out a framework that now serves as a touchstone for analyzing proposed matters of national concern, determining that the following four conclusions were firmly established. Quote, 1. The National Concern Doctrine is separate and distinct from the National Emergency Doctrine of the Peace, Order and Good Government Power, which is chiefly distinguishable by the fact that it provides a constitutional basis for what is necessarily legislation of a temporary nature. 
2. The national concern doctrine applies to both new matters which did not exist at confederation and to matters which, although originally matters of a local or private nature in a province, have since, in the absence of national emergency, become matters of national concern. 3. For a matter to qualify as a matter of national concern in either sense it must have a singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern and a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. 4. In determining whether a matter has attained the required degree of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern it is relevant to consider what would be the effect on extra-provincial interests, of a provincial failure to deal effectively with the control or regulation of the interprovincial aspects of the matter. End of quote. Justice Ledain elaborated on the final point, the provincial inability test. He reasoned that provincial inability would be established where a provincial failure to deal effectively with the interprovincial aspects of the matter could have an adverse effect on extra-provincial interests. He characterized provincial inability as one of the indicia of singleness or indivisibility. Applying this framework to the federal ocean dumping law at issue in that case, Justice Ledain held that the law was valid on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. He found that marine pollution in general is clearly a matter of concern to Canada as a whole because of its predominantly extra-provincial and international character. Focusing specifically on the control of pollution by the dumping of substances in marine waters, including provincial marine waters, Justice Ledain concluded that this matter is single and distinctive. In a relevant international convention, marine pollution by dumping was treated as a distinct and separate form of water pollution. Marine pollution has its own characteristics and scientific considerations that distinguish it from freshwater pollution. It is indivisible, because there is a close relationship between pollution in provincial internal waters and pollution in the federal territorial sea, and because it is difficult to ascertain by visual observation the boundary between these waters. The distinction in the statute between freshwater and salt water ensured that the matter would have ascertainable and reasonable limits so that its impact on provincial jurisdiction would be acceptable. In the more than 30 years since Crown Zellerbach, the court has not found that the federal government has jurisdiction over any new matters of national concern. However, in Ontario Hydro and Ontario Labor Relations Board, 1993, SCC, the court accepted the earlier finding by lower courts that atomic energy is a matter of national concern. In accepting the applicability of the National Concern Doctrine in that case, this court was unanimous on the point that federal jurisdiction over atomic energy is grounded in the potential for catastrophic interprovincial and international harm. At issue was whether labor relations comprised part of the matter of atomic energy. A majority of the court held that labor relations falls within that matter of national concern, finding that labor relations is integral to the federal interests that make atomic energy a national concern. Finally, the most recent case in which the court considered the National Concern Doctrine was Hydro-Quebec. At issue was the constitutional validity of Part 2 of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which empowered federal ministers to determine what substances are toxic and to prohibit the introduction of such substances into the environment except in accordance with specified terms and conditions. Justice Lefori, writing for the majority, upheld the law on the basis of the criminal law power and declined to apply the National Concern Doctrine. He cautioned against an enthusiastic adoption of that doctrine, but acknowledged that a discrete area of environmental legislative power can form a matter of national concern if it meets the Crown-Zellerbach test. From the infancy of the national concern doctrine in local prohibition reference to the court's most recent consideration of the doctrine in Hydro-Quebec, the jurisprudence reviewed above shows that the court has been responsive to the legitimate concern that the doctrine poses a threat to provincial autonomy. The national concern test, properly understood, adequately addresses this risk. 
the test places a clear limit on the federal POG power and ensures that the national concern doctrine can be applied only in exceptional cases, where doing so is necessary in order for the federal government to discharge its duty to address truly national problems and is consistent with the division of powers. Sub-subpart 2. Clarifying the National Concern Doctrine the case law reviewed above firmly establishes the National Concern Doctrine in Canadian law and explains the fundamental principles underlying its application. This doctrine applies only to matters that transcend the provinces owing to their inherently national character. In Crown Zellerbach, this court explained that a proposed matter of national concern must have a singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility. Furthermore, a finding that the matter is one of national concern must be reconcilable with the division of powers. As can be seen from the decisions of the courts below and from the parties' arguments, there is significant uncertainty regarding a number of issues that are central to the National Concern Doctrine. This is unsurprising, given that there are very few recent cases concerning the doctrine, which in turn flows from the fact that one of its defining features is its restrictive application. This case presents an opportunity to clarify these issues. In particular, each of the steps of the National Concern Test requires further discussion. Before turning to those steps, however, I must address two preliminary issues with respect to the matter in question in the analysis. First, there is some uncertainty about what the matter to which the national concern test applies actually is. Second, this case raises the question of the scope and nature of the federal power over a matter of national concern, and in particular whether the double aspect doctrine can apply in this context. In other words, what are the consequences for the division of powers of identifying a new matter of national concern? The answer to this question will have a significant impact on the analysis undertaken at the final step of the test, at which the court must determine whether finding that the proposed matter is one of national concern is reconcilable with the division of powers. Throughout my analysis on these issues, I will be relying in part on this court's trade and commerce jurisprudence, and in particular on 2011 Securities Reference and 2018 Securities Reference. As the court has observed, the National Concern Doctrine and the trade and commerce power pose similar challenges to federalism. In both contexts, the court has interpreted the federal power narrowly to ensure that it does not overwhelm provincial jurisdiction and undermine the federal-provincial division of powers. Although the court has not addressed the National Concern Doctrine in any detail for many years, the more recent cases of 2011 Securities Reference and 2018 Securities Reference, in which it applied the general branch of the trade and commerce power, offer useful insight and are consistent with the modern approach to federalism. However, my citing these cases should not be taken as an invitation to conflate the two powers. They are distinct, and, as Justice Beats warned in Re-Anti-Inflation Act, courts should be all the more careful when applying the residual POG power than when interpreting the enumerated trade and commerce power. Section A. Matter of National Concern. As I explained above, the division of powers analysis follows a familiar pathway. The first stage is to characterize the pith and substance, or matter, of the impugned statute or provision. The second stage is to classify that matter by reference to the heads of power set out in the Constitution. Having identified the pith and substance of the GGPPA, I come now to the classification analysis in relation to the National Concern Doctrine. The Attorney General of Saskatchewan argues that the classification analysis in this context must depart from the usual framework. Rather than assessing whether the matter of the statute can be classified on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine, Saskatchewan submits that the classification analysis must be applied to a different proposed head of power based on the POG power, one cast at a level of generality that is broader than the matter of the statute. This approach cannot be accepted. 
there is no principled basis for departing from the ordinary division of powers analysis to require that the matter of national concern analyzed by the court at the classification stage be broader than the matter of the statute as identified by the court at the characterization stage applying the classification analysis to the matter of the statute in the context of the national concern doctrine is consistent with the constitutional text with the jurisprudence and with the principle of judicial restraint first as to the constitutional text section ninety one does not provide in the context of the pod power that parliament can make laws in relation to classes of subjects instead it states that parliament can make laws for the peace order and good government of canada in relation to matters matters and classes of subjects are distinct Lawmaking powers are exercisable in relation to matters, which in turn generally come within broader classes of subjects. A matter that falls under the pod power necessarily does not come within the classes of subjects enumerated in sections 91 and 92. This does not mean, however, that the word matter has a different meaning in the context of the pod power. Matter is used in sections 91 and 92 to refer to the pith and substance of legislation. Nothing in the words of the Constitution supports the construction of a class of subjects under the pod power that is broader than the matter of the statute. Instead, the text of the Constitution supports the approach of applying the national concern test to the matter of the statute as identified by the court at the characterization stage. Second, this approach is consistent with the jurisprudence. In the leading cases on the national concern doctrine, the court focused on the matter of the statute in considering the classification issue. In Re-Anti-Inflation Act, the broad matter of containment and reduction of inflation that Justice Beats rejected was not based on a statute whose real focus was narrower, but was in fact what the Attorney General of Canada identified as the matter of the statute at issue. In Crown Zellerbach, the majority did not find that marine pollution generally was a matter of national concern, but instead found that the specific matter of the Ocean Dumping Control Act, the control of marine pollution by the dumping of substances, was one. In those cases, the pith and substance of the legislation itself determined the breadth and content of the matter to which the national concern test was applied. Third, this approach is consistent with the principle of judicial restraint. In Monroe, Justice Cartwright emphasized on the subject of the national concern doctrine that the court should confine itself to the precise question raised in the proceeding which is before it. Similarly, in Canadian Western Bank and Alberta, 2007, SCC, this court stated that courts should not attempt to define the possible scope of broad powers in advance and for all time, but should instead proceed with caution on a case-by-case -case basis. The Attorney General of Saskatchewan proposes that the court go beyond the precise question asked. In fact, however, a more cautious approach is appropriate in the context of the National Concern Doctrine, given its potential to disrupt the federal-provincial balance. Put simply, if Parliament has not indicated in a statute that its intention is to exercise jurisdiction over a broad matter, there is no reason for a court to artificially construct such a broad matter. Finally, I respectfully reject the suggestion that this approach somehow conflates the characterization and classification stages. It does not. As I explained above, the analyses at the two stages are distinct. At the first stage, a court must follow the accepted approach to the pith and substance analysis in order to characterize the matter of the statute. As both Justice Karakatsanis and Justice Kassara recently stated in reference Regenetic Non-Discrimination Act, 2020, SCC, the court must focus on the law itself and what it is really about. Only then does it proceed to the classification analysis, which in the case at bar involves consideration of the national concern doctrine. If the matter is not legally viable as a matter of national concern, then, as was the case in Re-Anti-Inflation Act, the statute cannot be upheld on the basis of that doctrine. If, on the other hand, the matter meets the national concern test, then the statute will be valid. Respectfully, this does not constitutionalize the statute. 
It simply determines the validity of the law and resolves the question before the court. Therefore, the matter to consider in this national concern analysis is establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I agree with the majority of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan that stringency in this context is not limited to the charge per unit of greenhouse gas emissions. It encompasses the scope or breadth of application of the charge in the sense of the fuels, operations and activities to which the charge applies and the authority to implement regulatory schemes that are necessary in order to implement such a charge. Section B. Exclusive Federal Jurisdiction Based on the National Concern Doctrine There is no doubt that a finding that a matter is of national concern confers exclusive jurisdiction over that matter on Parliament. However, the nature and consequences of this exclusive federal jurisdiction is contested by the parties in this case and requires clarification. Understanding the consequences of the recognition of a new matter of national concern is critical in order to properly undertake the scale of impact analysis at the third step of the national concern test. Uncertainty about the nature of exclusive federal jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine may be rooted in the use of the word plenary to describe the power in certain cases. In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain characterized Justice Beetz's views in Re-Anti-Inflation Act as follows. Where a matter falls within the national concern doctrine, Parliament has an exclusive jurisdiction of a plenary nature to legislate in relation to that matter, including its interprovincial aspects. However, Justice Ledain went on to reject the proposition that there must be plenary jurisdiction to deal with any legislative problem. In Ontario Hydro, a majority of this court concluded that federal jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine is not plenary and does not give Parliament jurisdiction over all aspects of, in that case, atomic energy. Instead, the court had to determine whether the regulation of labor relations falls within the national concern aspects of atomic energy. In my view, describing the power as plenary is unhelpful. The word plenary speaks to the scope of the power. As can be seen from Ontario Hydro, in the context of the National Concern Doctrine, the scope of the federal power is defined by the nature of the national concern itself. Only aspects with a sufficient connection to the underlying inherent national concern will fall within the scope of the federal power. It was not a foregone conclusion that labor relations at a nuclear generating station would fall within the federal government's jurisdiction over atomic energy, as one might expect if the National Concern Doctrine grounded a plenary federal power. Rather, the question was whether the safety concerns that make atomic energy a matter of inherent national concern had a sufficient connection to labor relations to bring labor relations within the scope of the federal power. The Attorney General of Ontario asserts, as a general proposition, that the consequences of recognizing a new matter of national concern are sweeping. It is true that the recognition of any new matter of national concern has consequences for federalism. However, the scope of such consequences is case-specific because, as I have just explained, the scope of the federal power in the context of the national concern doctrine depends on the nature of the national concern at issue in the case in question. Thus, there is some truth to Ontario's submission in the case of, for example, the national concern matter of aeronautics. But this flows from the particular nature of the matter of aeronautics and not from the general nature of the national concern doctrine. The sighting of aerodromes falls within the federal power over aeronautics, not because aeronautics has some predetermined breadth flowing from its status as a matter of national concern, but because the nature of the matter is such that it must include terrestrial installations that facilitate flight. Moreover, in its early case law on aeronautics, this court held that the sighting of aerodromes is not merely within the scope of the federal power, but is essential to that power, such that the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity applies. The application of interjurisdictional immunity to any federal power has an obvious impact on provincial jurisdiction, but interjurisdictional immunity does not automatically apply to matters of national concern. 
It was applied in Quebec, Attorney General and Canadian Owners and Pilots Association, 2010, SCC, because there was a precedent that compelled its application, not because the National Concern Doctrine required that it be applied. Today's restrained approach to interjurisdictional immunity suggests that it would not apply to a newly identified matter of national concern. The example of aeronautics therefore tells us little about the consequences of identifying any other matter of national concern. Sensibly, the national concern test requires a case-specific inquiry into whether the recognition of a particular matter of national concern is reconcilable with the division of powers in the scale of impact analysis. A closely related question concerns the applicability of the double aspect doctrine to a matter of national concern. The double aspect doctrine recognizes that the same fact situations can be regulated from different perspectives, one of which may relate to a provincial power and the other to a federal power. If a fact situation can be regulated from different federal and provincial perspectives and each level of government has a compelling interest in enacting legal rules in relation to that situation, the double aspect doctrine may apply. In my view, the double aspect doctrine can apply in cases in which the federal government has jurisdiction on the basis of the national concern doctrine, but whether or not it does apply will vary from case to case. This approach fosters coherence in the law because the double aspect doctrine can apply to every enumerated federal and provincial head of power, including the general branch of the trade and commerce power, and can also apply in respect of POD matters. Applying the double aspect doctrine to the national concern doctrine is also consistent with the modern approach to federalism, which favors flexibility and a degree of overlapping jurisdiction. The National Capital Region provides a helpful example of the application of the double aspect doctrine in the national concern context. The finding in Monroe that the development, conservation and improvement of the National Capital Region is a matter of national concern has not displaced municipal planning and development, which is based on a provincially delegated authority. Instead, the National Capital Commission and the cities of Ottawa and Gatineau each regulate land use planning. The commission from the federal perspective of the national nature and character of the national capital and the municipalities from a local perspective. However, as I noted above, the fact that the double aspect doctrine can apply does not mean that it will apply in a given case. It should be applied cautiously so as to avoid eroding the importance attached to provincial autonomy in this court's jurisprudence. Justice Beats cautioned that it can be applied only in clear cases where the multiplicity of aspects is real and not merely nominal. In some cases, the double aspect doctrine has not been applied where federal jurisdiction fell under the national concern doctrine. The double aspect doctrine takes on particular significance where, as in the case at Bar, Canada asserts jurisdiction over a matter that involves a minimum national standard imposed by legislation that operates as a backstop. The recognition of a matter of national concern such as this will inevitably result in a double aspect situation. This is in fact the very premise of a federal scheme that imposes minimum national standards. Canada and the provinces are both free to legislate in relation to the same fact situation, in this case by imposing greenhouse gas pricing, but the federal law is paramount. I recognize that it might be argued that Canada and the provinces are exercising their jurisdiction in relation to different matters rather than to different aspects of the same matter, that is, that Canada's authority is limited to minimum national standards of greenhouse gas pricing stringency and that this is obviously different than the matters in relation to which provinces might exercise jurisdiction over greenhouse gas pricing. This view finds support in some of the language used by this court, such as the comment in Canadian Western Bank that the double aspect doctrine concerns the various aspects of the matter. However, I do not read Canadian Western Bank that narrowly, given this court's recent guidance in De Gagnier Transport, in which it stated that the double aspect doctrine concerns fact situations. 
Moreover, the fact that Canada can be understood to be empowered to deal only with a different matter than the provinces does not change the resulting jurisdictional reality that where Canada is empowered to impose a minimum national standard. A double aspect situation arises. Federal and provincial laws apply concurrently, but the federal law is paramount. From the perspective of provincial autonomy, the corrosive effect is the same. Therefore, courts must recognize that this amounts to an invitation to identify a previously unidentified double aspect, with clear consequences for provincial autonomy. Justice Beats's caution about the double aspect doctrine thus applies with particular force where Canada asserts jurisdiction over a matter that involves a minimum national standard. In such a case, even if the national concern test would otherwise be met, Justice Beats's caution should act as an additional check. The court must be satisfied that Canada in fact has a compelling interest in enacting legal rules over the federal aspect of the activity at issue, and that the multiplicity of aspects is real and not merely nominal. As I will explain in greater detail below, the court must be satisfied at the scale of impact step that the consequences of finding that the proposed matter is one of national concern are reconcilable with the division of powers. Sub sub part 3. National Concern Test. I will now turn to the specifics of the test for identifying matters that are inherently of national concern. As I will explain below, the applicable framework involves a three-step process, the threshold question, the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility analysis, and the scale of impact analysis. Before detailing these steps, there are two points worth noting about the framework as a whole. First, the recognition of a matter of national concern must be based on evidence. I find the court's trade and commerce power jurisprudence instructive in this regard. In the 2011 securities reference, Canada argued that securities trading had once been primarily a local matter, but that it had since evolved to become a matter of transcendent national concern that brought it within the trade and commerce power. For this argument to succeed, Canada had to present the court with a factual matrix supporting its assertion of jurisdiction. In other words, the onus was on Canada to show that the statute at issue addresses concerns that transcend local, provincial interests by producing not mere conjecture, but evidentiary support. Similarly, an onus rests on Canada throughout the national concern analysis to adduce evidence in support of its assertion of jurisdiction. Second, there is no requirement that a matter be historically new in order to be found to be one of national concern. Moreover, it is not helpful to link historical newness to a finding of federal jurisdiction. Many new developments may be predominantly local and provincial in character and fall under provincial heads of power. As Justice LaBelle and Deschamps wrote in reference Reassisted Human Reproduction Act, 2010, SCC, in the context of the federal criminal law power, reasoning that novelty alone justifies federal jurisdiction would upset the federal-provincial balance. I agree with scholars who have characterized newness as an unhelpful or neutral factor in the national concern analysis. Given that historical newness is irrelevant to the analysis, it may be helpful to explain certain references to newness in the jurisprudence. In Re-Anti-Inflation Act, Justice Beats spoke of the application of the national concern doctrine only to new matters, whereas in Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain spoke of its applying to both new matters and matters that had become matters of national concern. Some commentators suggest that Crown Zellerbach therefore represents a departure from Justice Beats's approach. In my view, all this confusion stems from what is meant by the word new. In Re-Anti-Inflation Act, Justice Beats intended new to refer to matters that could satisfy the national concern test. This included both new matters that did not exist in 1867 and matters that are new in the sense that our understanding of those subject matters has, in some way, shifted so as to bring out their inherently national character. The critical element of this analysis is the requirement that matters of national concern be inherently national in character, not that they be historically new. 
The use of the word becoming crown Zellerbach served to articulate that the newness of the matter can also refer to our belated understanding of a matter's true or inherent nature. This is what Justice Beats meant when he explained that these matters are ones which do not fall within any of the enumerated heads of section 92 and which, by nature, are of national concern. There is no inconsistency between Re-Anti-Inflation Act and Crown Zellerbach on this point. To be clear, the National Concern Doctrine does not allow Parliament to legislate in relation to matters that come within the classes of subjects assigned exclusively to the provinces. The purpose of the analysis is strictly to determine whether a matter is by nature one of national concern. It follows that the majority of the Court of Appeal of Alberta erred in adding, as a threshold restriction, that matters that originally fell under provincial heads of power other than Section 92 sub 16 of the Constitution are incapable of acquiring national dimensions. Instead, the possibility that an existing matter may be found to be one of national concern provides a principled basis for courts to be responsive to new evidence in their application of the constitutional text. This is as it should be. Constitutional texts must be interpreted in a broad and purposive manner. Constitutional texts must also be interpreted in a manner that is sensitive to evolving circumstances because they must continually adapt to cover new realities. Let us consider atomic energy, the matter of national concern that this court identified in Ontario Hydro. This matter encompasses the mining of raw materials such as uranium, materials that existed and were mined prior to the discovery of atomic energy. Before World War II, the dominant characteristic of uranium mining would likely have been the management of natural resources within the province, which would have come within various enumerated provincial classes of subjects. Section 92A, while also relevant, did not come into being until the Constitution was amended in 1982, but that did not prevent atomic energy, including the production of its raw materials, from being found to be a matter which is, by nature, of national concern because of its safety and security risks, particularly the risk of catastrophic interprovincial harm. In other words, the discovery of atomic energy brought out the inherently national character of uranium mining. The fact that uranium mining would have fallen under provincial heads of power other than section 92 sub 16 prior to this discovery is irrelevant to the analysis and did not preclude the finding that atomic energy is a matter of national concern. The historical newness of atomic energy is equally irrelevant. The dispositive feature of the cases in question was instead that the discovery of atomic energy had led to evidence grounding a new understanding of the inherent nature of the matter as one of national concern. It also follows that I do not agree with my colleague Justice Rowe's articulation of the National Concern Test, which consists of two requirements as follows. First, the matter must not come within the enumerated powers, and second, the matter must be such that it cannot be shared between both orders of government and that it must be entrusted to Parliament, exclusively, to avoid a jurisdictional vacuum. With great respect, I see a jurisprudential barrier to my colleague's approach, which I find myself unable to resolve. I am not persuaded that the matters of national concern this court has recognized, such as the development of the national capital region or the control of marine pollution by dumping, would necessarily meet his test if it were applied in the manner he proposes. Nor, in my view, can Munro or Crown Zellerbach be read as an application of my colleague's methodology. In those cases, this court did not proceed by way of a two-step search for a jurisdictional vacuum. Rather, it applied the national concern test to identify matters of inherent national concern. Thus, Munro and Crown Zellerbach can be explained in light of a more conventional understanding of the national concern doctrine that was articulated in Crown Zellerbach itself, and which I will explain in greater detail below. Marine pollution is predominantly extra-provincial and international in character, while the development of the national capital is of concern to Canada as a whole. The matters proposed in those cases were specific and identifiable and had ascertainable and reasonable limits. 
The requirement of provincial inability, understood in the sense of serious extra-provincial harm, was met. The failure of either Quebec or Ontario to cooperate in the development of the national capital region would have denied to all Canadians the symbolic value of a suitable national capital, and the failure of one province to protect its waters would probably lead to the pollution of the waters of other provinces as well as the territorial sea and high sea. Lastly, the recognition of these matters was compatible with the division of powers. The result of this analysis leads to the conclusion that these matters, by their nature, transcend the provinces. They were thus shown to fall outside of Section 92 and were appropriate matters for recognition under the National Concern Doctrine. I therefore respectfully disagree with my colleague's articulation of the National Concern Test. To sum up, the purpose of the National Concern Analysis is to identify matters of inherent national concern, matters which, by their nature, transcend the provinces. Historical newness is irrelevant to this analysis, and there is no threshold question whether the matter can be characterized as being new. Instead, the analysis has three steps, the threshold question, which relates not to newness but to whether the matter is of sufficient concern to Canada as whole, the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility analysis, and the scale of impact analysis. The onus is on Canada to adduce evidence to satisfy the court that a matter of inherent national concern is made out. I will now discuss each of these three steps in detail. Section A. Threshold Question. Ports must approach a finding that the federal government has jurisdiction on the basis of the national concern doctrine with great caution. The analysis therefore begins by asking, as a threshold question, whether the matter is of sufficient concern to Canada as a whole to warrant consideration under the doctrine. This invites a common-sense inquiry into the national importance of the proposed matter. This court's analysis in key national concern decisions has begun with an assessment of whether the matter at issue is one of concern to Canada as a whole. In Monroe, Justice Cartwright began with an observation that the matter was the concern of Canada as a whole. The reasons of the majorities of the Saskatchewan and Ontario Courts of Appeal in the instant case reflect this approach. Chief Justice Richards began his analysis on this subject with the broad starting point of whether this matter is something of genuine national importance. Chief Justice Strathy first asked whether the matter is both national and a concern before proceeding to the analysis of singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility. Although this inquiry was not identified as a distinct step of the analysis in Crown-Zellerbach, it serves an important purpose. The threshold question ensures that the national concern doctrine cannot be invoked too lightly and provides essential context for the analysis that follows. Requiring that this question be asked as the first step of the test is inappropriate. Incremental development in the law to ensure that federal power under the national concern doctrine is properly constrained. At the threshold step, Canada must adduce evidence to satisfy the court that the matter is of sufficient concern to Canada as a whole to warrant consideration in accordance with the national concern doctrine. If Canada discharges this burden, the analysis proceeds. This approach does not open the door to the recognition of federal jurisdiction simply on the basis that a legislative field is important. It operates to limit the application of the National Concern Doctrine. Section B. Singleness, Distinctiveness and Indivisibility The second step of the analysis was explained by Justice Ledain as follows in Crown-Zellerbach. The matter must have a singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern. Justice Ledain added that this inquiry includes the provincial inability test in determining whether a matter has attained the required degree of singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility that clearly distinguishes it from matters of provincial concern. It is relevant to consider what would be the effect on extra-provincial interests of a provincial failure to deal effectively with the control or regulation of the inter-provincial aspects of the matter. The phrase singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility requires some explanation. On its own, this phrase does not amount to a readily applicable legal test. Rather, in my view, 
two principles underpin the singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility requirement and must be satisfied in order to determine that a matter is one of national concern. In Justice Ledain's formulation, these characteristics are essential because they are features that clearly distinguish a matter of national concern from matters of provincial concern. This is the first principle underpinning the singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility inquiry to prevent federal overreach. Jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine should be found to exist only over a specific and identifiable matter that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. The recognition of provincial inability as a marker of singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility points to a second principle animating the inquiry. Federal jurisdiction should be found to exist only where the evidence establishes provincial inability to deal with the matter. This means that the matter at issue is of a nature that the provinces cannot address either jointly or severally, because the failure of one or more provinces to cooperate would prevent the other provinces from successfully addressing it, and that a province's failure to deal with the matter within its own borders would have grave extra-provincial consequences. Regarding the first principle, the proposed federal matter must be specific and readily identifiable. As Justice Beats made clear in Re-Anti-Inflation Act, a matter that is lacking in specificity or is boundless cannot pass muster as a matter of national concern. The specific and identifiable matter must also be qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. It is clearly not enough for a matter to be quantitatively different from matters of provincial concern. The mere growth or extent of a problem across Canada is insufficient to justify federal jurisdiction. The case law points to several factors that properly inform this analysis. One key consideration for determining whether the matter is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern is whether it is predominantly extra-provincial and international in character, having regard both to its inherent nature and to its effects. The case law demonstrates that this inquiry is central to the national concern doctrine. The finding that marine pollution is extra-provincial and international in its character and implications was critical to the recognition of a matter of national concern in Crown Zellerbach. In Ontario Hydro, the judges were unanimous in grounding the federal government's jurisdiction over atomic energy based on the POG power in the potential for catastrophic interprovincial and international harm. By contrast, in Hydro-Quebec, the judges who considered the issue concluded that the fact that the statute regulated substances whose effects were entirely interprovincial and localized was a barrier to its recognition as a matter of national concern. However, they accepted that a matter dealing with toxic substances that originate in a particular province may nonetheless be predominantly extra-provincial and international in character if the substances in question have serious effects that can cross provincial boundaries. International agreements may in some cases indicate that a matter is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. Consideration of international agreements figured into the court's national concern analysis in Johannesen and Municipality of West St. John, 1952, SCC and in Crown Zellerbach. Significantly, the existence of treaty obligations is not determinative of federal jurisdiction. There is no freestanding federal treaty implementation power and Parliament's jurisdiction to implement treaties signed by the federal government depends on the ordinary division of powers. Treaty obligations and international agreements can be relevant to the national concern analysis, however, depending on their content, they may help to show that a matter has an extra-provincial and international character thereby supporting a finding that it is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. Furthermore, to be qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern, the matter must not be an aggregate of provincial matters. The federal legislative role must be distinct from and not duplicative of that of the provinces. Once again, the court's trade and commerce jurisprudence is helpful in this regard. The court's opinions with respect to securities regulation show that a regulatory field with an international or extra-provincial dimension can also have local features. 
while there are aspects of securities regulation that are national in character and have genuine national goals, much of this sphere is primarily focused on local concerns related to investor protection and market fairness. As the 2011 securities reference and the 2018 securities reference confirm, federal legislation will not be qualitatively distinct if it overshoots regulation of a national aspect of the field and instead duplicates provincial regulation or regulates issues that are primarily of local concern. Thus, the first principle underpinning the requirement of singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility is that federal jurisdiction may only be recognized over a specific and identifiable matter that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. At this stage, the court should inquire into whether the matter is predominantly extra-provincial and international in its nature or its effects, into the content of any international agreements in relation to the matter, and into whether the matter involves a federal legislative role that is distinct from and not duplicative of that of the provinces. I will now turn to the second principle, that is, that federal jurisdiction should be found to exist only where the evidence establishes provincial inability to deal with the matter. This court's jurisprudence in relation to the general branch of the trade and commerce power is helpful on this point, too. The starting point for this analysis should be the provincial inability test expressed through the fourth and fifth indicia discussed in General Motors of Canada Limited and City National Leasing, 1989, SCC, 1. The legislation should be of a nature that the provinces jointly or severally would be constitutionally incapable of enacting, and, two, the failure to include one or more provinces or localities in a legislative scheme would jeopardize the successful operation of the scheme in other parts of the country. For provincial inability to be established for the purposes of the national concern doctrine, both of these factors are required. But there is a third factor that is required in the context of the national concern doctrine in order to establish provincial inability a province's failure to deal with the matter must have grave extra-provincial consequences. Professor Hogg explains that evaluating extra-provincial harm helps to determine whether a national law is not merely desirable, but essential, in the sense that the problem is beyond the power of the provinces to deal with it. This connects the provincial inability test to the overall purpose of the national concern test, which is to identify matters of inherent national concern that transcend the provinces. The need for grave consequences for the residents of other provinces was adopted by this court in Labatt Breweries and can be seen woven throughout its national concern jurisprudence. In local prohibition reference, the Privy Council suggested arms trafficking as an example of a potential matter of national concern, which is consistent with this requirement of grave extra-provincial consequences flowing from provincial inaction in relation to the matter. And in Johannesen, Justice Locke of this court had emphasized that one province's failure to provide space for aerodromes could have the intolerable extra-provincial consequence of isolating northern regions of Canada. Although the extra-provincial harm at issue in Monroe was of a different nature, it was nonetheless meaningful, as it would have resulted in the denial of a suitable national capital to all Canadians. In Ontario Hydro, Justice Lefori reasoned that one province's failure to effectively regulate atomic energy could invite disaster, endangering the safety of people hundreds of miles from a nuclear facility. In contrast, the majority in Schneider reasoned that one province's failure to provide treatment facilities for heroin users will not endanger the interests of another province. This conception of provincial inability was reaffirmed in Crown Zellerbach. The requirement of grave extra-provincial consequences sets a high bar for a finding of provincial inability for the purposes of the National Concern Doctrine. This requirement can be satisfied by actual harm or by a serious risk of harm being sustained in the future. It may include serious harm to human life and health or to the environment, though it is not necessarily limited to such consequences. Mere inefficiency or additional financial costs stemming from divided or overlapping jurisdiction is clearly insufficient. 
Moreover, as I noted above, the onus is on Canada to establish that provincial inability is made out and evidence is required for the questions of provincial inability and the harm that flows therefrom are both factual in part. In Crown Zellerbach, Justice Ledain characterized provincial inability as an indicium of singleness and indivisibility, but in much of this court's national concern jurisprudence, it has been treated as a strict requirement rather than as a mere optional indicium. Provincial inability has been used on this basis to reject national concern arguments and limit the doctrine's application. In my view, provincial inability functions as a strong constraint on federal power and should be seen as a necessary but not sufficient requirement for the purposes of the national concern doctrine. Treating provincial inability as merely an optional indicium robs it of its initial, necessity-based, narrowing effect and opens doors for national concern. In conclusion, there are two principles that apply in relation to singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility. First, federal jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine should be found to exist only over a specific and identifiable matter that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. And second, federal jurisdiction should be found to exist only where the evidence establishes provincial inability to deal with the matter. Provincial inability will be established only if the matter is of a nature that the provinces cannot address either jointly or severally, because the failure of one or more provinces to cooperate would prevent the other provinces from successfully addressing it, and if a province's failure to deal with the matter within its own borders would have grave extra-provincial consequences. A few further words about indivisibility are in order, because my colleagues Justice Brown and Rowe say that it has been written out of the national concern test in these reasons. The requirement of indivisibility is given effect through both of the principles I have discussed. The first of these principles requires a specific and identifiable matter which is not a boundless aggregate. The second principle requires provincial inability, as it is clearly defined in Crown Zellerbach and, indeed, throughout the court's national concern jurisprudence, which is a marker of indivisibility. I respectfully disagree with my colleague's understanding of indivisibility, according to which interrelatedness is a criterion for establishing indivisibility. Justice Ledain referred to interrelatedness only once, in his explanation of why the provincial inability test helps the court determine whether a matter has the character of singleness or indivisibility. Thus, if a province's approach to the interprovincial aspects of a matter could cause grave extraprovincial harm, that is, if the provincial inability test is met, the matter can be said to have an interrelatedness, which supports a finding of indivisibility. One difficulty with my colleagues' approach, in my view, is that they treat interrelatedness, a situation in which the provincial inability test is met, as sufficient to establish indivisibility, while at the same time maintaining that meeting the provincial inability test cannot establish indivisibility. Respectfully, I would favor giving effect to the requirement of indivisibility on the basis of the two principles I have set out, which is consistent both with Justice Ledain's treatment of interrelatedness and with the national concern jurisprudence as a whole, and presents no such analytical difficulties. Section C. Scale of Impact. At the final step of the national concern test, Canada must show that the proposed matter has a scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction that is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. Determining whether the matter's scale of impact is reconcilable with the division of powers requires the court to balance competing interests. As Professor Elgie writes, it does not make sense to treat the acceptable impact on provincial authority as a static threshold. Instead, the effect on provincial jurisdiction should be assessed in the context of the matter at issue. The purpose of the scale of impact analysis is to prevent federal overreach. In other words, it is designed to protect against unjustified intrusions on provincial autonomy. In accordance with this purpose, at this stage of the analysis, the intrusion upon provincial autonomy that would result from empowering Parliament to act is balanced against the extent of the impact on the interests 
that would be affected if Parliament were unable to constitutionally address the matter at a national level. Identifying a new matter of national concern will be justified only if the latter outweighs the former. Section D. Summary of the Framework. In summary, finding that a matter is one of national concern involves a three-step analysis. First, Canada must establish that the matter is of sufficient concern to the country as a whole to warrant consideration as a possible matter of national concern. This question arises in every case, regardless of whether the matter can be characterized as historically new. If Canada discharges its burden at the step of this threshold inquiry, the analysis will proceed. Second, the court must undertake the analysis explained in Crown-Zellerbach through the language of singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility. More important than this terminology, however, are the principles underpinning the inquiry. The first of these principles is that, to prevent federal overreach, jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine should be found to exist only over a specific and identifiable matter that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. The second principle to be considered at this stage of the inquiry is that federal jurisdiction should be found to exist only where the evidence establishes provincial inability to deal with the matter. If these two principles are satisfied, the court will proceed to the third and final step and determine whether the scale of impact of the proposed matter of national concern is reconcilable with the division of powers. The onus is on Canada throughout this analysis, and evidence is required. Where a proposed federal matter satisfies the requirements of all three steps of the framework, there is a principled basis to conclude that the matter is one that, by its nature, transcends the provinces and should be recognized as a matter of national concern. Sub Sub Part 4 Application to the GGPPA Section A2. Threshold question. Canada has adduced evidence that clearly shows that establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is of sufficient concern to Canada as a whole that it warrants consideration in accordance with the national concern doctrine. To begin, this matter's importance to Canada as a whole must be understood in light of the seriousness of the underlying problem. All parties to this proceeding agree that climate change is an existential challenge. It is a threat of the highest order to the country, and indeed to the world. This context, on its own, provides some assurance that in the case at bar, Canada is not seeking to invoke the national concern doctrine too lightly. The undisputed existence of a threat to the future of humanity cannot be ignored. That being said, the matter at issue here is not the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions generally, and Canada is not seeking to have all potential forms of greenhouse gas regulation classified as matters of national concern. Rather, the specific question before the court is whether establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is a matter of national concern. The history of efforts to address climate change in Canada reflects the critical role of carbon pricing strategies and policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. As discussed above, Canada and all the provinces committed, in the Vancouver Declaration, to including carbon pricing in the country's efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The subsequently established Working Group on Carbon Pricing Mechanisms recognized in its final report that many experts regard carbon pricing as a necessary tool for efficiently reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The Working Group's final report had the support of all provinces and of Canada at the time it was published, and its affirmation of the importance of carbon pricing is supported by the record in this case. Similarly, the Specific Mitigation Opportunities Working Group, one of the other three working groups established under the Vancouver Declaration, Listed, in its final report, broad, economy-wide carbon pricing is one of three essential elements of a comprehensive approach to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. 
Furthermore, there is a broad consensus among expert international bodies such as the World Bank, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and the International Monetary Fund that carbon pricing is a critical measure for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. For example, the High-Level Commission on Carbon Prices report of the High-Level Commission on Carbon Prices states, a well-designed carbon price is an indispensable part of a strategy for reducing emissions in an efficient way. And an International Monetary Fund staff discussion note entitled After Paris, Fiscal, Macroeconomic, and Financial Implications of Climate Change states, the central problem is that no single firm or household has a significant effect on climate, yet collectively there is a huge effect, so pricing is necessary to force the factoring of climate effects into individual-level decisions. In my view, the evidence reflects a consensus, both in Canada and internationally, that carbon pricing is integral to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In summary, the evidence clearly shows that establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is of concern to Canada, as a whole. This matter is critical to our response to an existential threat to human life in Canada and around the world. As a result, it readily passes the threshold test and warrants consideration as a possible matter of national concern. Section B. Singleness, Distinctiveness and Indivisibility As I explained above, the first principle to be considered in the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility inquiry is that federal jurisdiction based on the national concern doctrine should be found to exist only over a specific and identifiable matter that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. Recognizing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as a matter of national concern satisfies this requirement. Given that the matter at issue is establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gases, it is important to begin by observing that these gases are a specific and precisely identifiable type of pollutant. The harmful effects of greenhouse gases are known, and the fuel and excess emissions charges are based on the global warming potential of the gases. Moreover, greenhouse gas emissions are predominantly extra-provincial and international in their character and implications. This flows from their nature as a diffuse atmospheric pollutant and from their effect in causing global climate change. Greenhouse gas emissions are precisely the type of diffuse and persistent substances with serious deleterious extra-provincial effects that the dissent in Hydro-Quebec suggested might appropriately be regulated on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. In Interprovincial Cooperatives Limited and the Queen, 1976, SCC, a case concerning one province's emission of pollutants into an interprovincial river, Justice Pigeon observed that the court was faced with a pollution problem that is not really local in scope but truly interprovincial. Greenhouse gas emissions represent a pollution problem that is not merely interprovincial, but global, in scope. The international response to greenhouse gas emissions over the past three decades confirms this. As early as 1992, the preamble to the UNFCCC recognized climate change as a common concern of humankind, and also acknowledged its global nature. The acknowledgement that climate change is a common concern of humankind was reiterated in the Paris Agreement. As well, the need for an effective international response to climate change was recognized in both agreements. Specifically, the Paris Agreement identifies imperatives of holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2.0 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and achieving net zero emissions in the second half of the 21st century. States' parties are therefore required to make nationally determined contributions that are increasingly ambitious and to implement domestic mitigation measures for the purpose of ensuring that those contributions are achieved. Both the UNFCCC and the Paris Agreement help illustrate the predominantly extra-provincial and international nature of greenhouse gas emissions and support the conclusion that the matter at issue is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. 
Not only is the type of pollutant to which the matter applies identifiable and qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern, but the regulatory mechanism of greenhouse gas pricing is a specific and limited one. It operates in a particular way, seeking to change behavior by internalizing the cost of climate change impacts, incorporating them into the price of fuel and the cost of industrial activity. The Vancouver Declaration and the Working Group on Carbon Pricing Mechanisms that it established reflect the status of carbon pricing as a distinct form of regulation. Greenhouse gas pricing does not amount to the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions generally. It is also different in kind from regulatory mechanisms that do not involve pricing, such as sector-specific initiatives concerning electricity, buildings, transportation, industry, forestry, agriculture and waste. Minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency, which are implemented in this case by means of the backstop architecture of the GGPPA, relate to a federal role in carbon pricing that is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern. The 2011 Securities Reference and 2018 Securities Reference illustrate this point. The proposed legislation at issue in the 2011 Securities Reference did not have a distinctly national focus, it ran afoul of the division of powers by replicating existing provincial schemes. However, the court held that legislation aimed at imposing minimum standards applicable throughout the country and preserving the stability and integrity of Canada's financial markets might well relate to trade as a whole and could be a matter of national importance to which the federal general trade and commerce power applies. This was the approach the federal government took in the proposed legislation at issue in the 2018 Securities Reference. The focus of that legislation was on controlling systemic risks that represented a threat to the stability of the country's financial system as a whole. Its effect was to address any risk that slips through the cracks and poses a threat to the Canadian economy. Rather than displacing provincial securities legislation by ensuring the day-to-day -day regulation of securities trading, it sought to complement provincial legislation by addressing national economic objectives. The backstop approach taken in the GGPPA is analogous to the approach taken in the proposed legislation that was at issue in the 2018 Securities Reference. The GGPPA establishes minimum national standards of price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to ensure that Canada's nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement is achieved. It does so on a distinctly national basis, one that neither represents an aggregate of provincial matters nor duplicates provincial greenhouse gas pricing systems. Moreover, the Governor and Council's power to make a regulation that applies the GGPPA's pricing system to a province may be exercised only if it is first determined that the province's pricing mechanisms are insufficiently stringent. This is similar to the situation in the 2018 Securities Reference, in which the legislation required the federal regulator to consider the adequacy of existing provincial regulations before designating a benchmark or prescribing a product or practice. If each province designed its own pricing system and all the provincial systems met the federal pricing standards, the GGPPA would achieve its purpose without operating to directly price greenhouse gas emissions anywhere in the country. In other words, the GGPPA's pricing system comes into play only to address the risk of increased greenhouse gas emissions that would otherwise slip through the cracks as a result of one province's failure to implement a sufficiently stringent pricing mechanism. The GGPPA is tightly focused on this distinctly federal role and does not descend into the detailed regulation of all aspects of greenhouse gas pricing. While it is true that the administrative pricing mechanism set out in the GGPPA is detailed, it can apply only to provinces that fail to meet the federal stringency standard. Thus, the GGPPA's fundamental role is a distinctly federal one, evaluating provincial pricing mechanisms against an outcome-based legal standard in order to address national risks posed by insufficient carbon pricing stringency in any part of the country. 
The GGPPA does not prescribe any rules for provincial pricing mechanisms as long as they meet the federally designated standard. Even if the GGPPA were to apply so as to supplement an insufficiently stringent provincial pricing scheme, the prior existence of similar provincial legislation is not, as this court confirmed in the 2018 Securities Reference, a constitutional bar to federal legislation that pursues a qualitatively different national concern. Unlike the proposed legislation that was at issue in the 2011 Securities Reference, the GGPPA does not depend on provinces opting in. The GGPPA imposes minimum standards of price stringency on all provinces at all times. If a province is not listed, it is because the governor and council has determined that the province's system meets the federally determined standard, not because the province has opted out. Thus, like the 2018 securities reference, the instant case involves the distinctly federal role of setting national targets and stepping in to make up for an absence of provincial legislation or to supplement insufficient provincial legislation. The GGPP deals with the specific regulatory mechanism of greenhouse gas pricing in a way that is qualitatively different than how the provinces do so. The second principle to be considered at this stage of the inquiry is that federal jurisdiction should be found to exist only where the evidence establishes provincial inability to deal with the matter. I find that provincial inability is established in this case. First, the provinces, acting alone or together, are constitutionally incapable of establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The situation here is much like the one in the 2018 Securities Reference, in which the provinces would be able to enact legislation to address national goals relating to systemic risk but could not do so on a sustained basis, because any province could choose to withdraw at any time. In the instant case, while the provinces could choose to cooperatively establish a uniform carbon pricing scheme, doing so would not assure a sustained approach to minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The provinces and territories are constitutionally incapable of establishing a binding outcome-based minimum legal standard and national greenhouse gas pricing floor that applies in all provinces and territories at all times. Second, a failure to include one province in the scheme would jeopardize its success in the rest of Canada. It is true that a cooperative scheme might continue to exist if one province withdrew from it, but the issue here is whether it would be successful. The withdrawal of one province from the scheme would clearly threaten its success for two reasons. Emissions reductions that are limited to a few provinces would fail to address climate change if they were offset by increased emissions in other Canadian jurisdictions. And any province's failure to implement a sufficiently stringent greenhouse gas pricing mechanism could undermine the efficacy of greenhouse gas pricing everywhere in Canada because of the risk of carbon leakage. The evidence in the instant case shows that even significant emissions reductions in some provinces have failed to further the goals of any cooperative scheme, because they were offset by increased emissions in other provinces. Between 2005 and 2016, Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions declined by only 3.8%. In that period, emissions fell by 22% in Ontario, 11% in Quebec and 5.1% in British Columbia. Three of the five provinces with the highest levels of emissions in Canada, as well as by over 10% in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and Yukon. But these decreases were largely offset by increases of 14% in Alberta and 10.7% in Saskatchewan the other two provinces among the five with the highest levels of greenhouse gas emissions. As a result, Canada failed to honour its commitment under the Kyoto Protocol before withdrawing from that agreement in 2011, and it is not currently on track to honour its Copenhagen Accord commitment.
More recently, even though all the provinces made a commitment in the Vancouver Declaration in March 2016 to work collectively to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, Saskatchewan had withdrawn by the time of the Pan-Canadian Framework seven months later, and Ontario and Alberta also subsequently withdrew. Together, these three provinces accounted for 71% of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions in 2016. It is true that their withdrawal from the Pan-Canadian Framework does not mean that Saskatchewan, Ontario and Alberta will necessarily fail to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. But when provinces that are collectively responsible for more than two-thirds of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions opt out of a cooperative scheme, this illustrates the stark limitations of a non-binding cooperative approach. The participating provinces can only reduce their own emissions, less than one-third of Canada's total, and are vulnerable to the consequences of the lion's share of the emissions being generated by the non-participating provinces. What is more, any province's refusal to implement a sufficiently stringent greenhouse gas pricing mechanism could undermine greenhouse gas pricing everywhere in Canada because of the risk of carbon leakage. Carbon leakage is a phenomenon by which businesses in sectors with high levels of carbon emissions relocate to jurisdictions with less stringent carbon pricing policies. To be clear, the concern here is not with the economic extra-provincial consequences of carbon leakage. Jurisdictions routinely compete for business, and mere economic effects are not among the grave consequences that would support a finding of provincial inability in the national concern context. Rather, I am referring to the environmental consequences, and the resulting harm to humans, of carbon leakage. The risk that any emissions reductions achieved by pricing in one province would be offset by an increase in emissions in another province as a result of the relocation of businesses. Thus, provincial cooperation may not result in national emissions reductions, as businesses could simply relocate to non-cooperating provinces, leaving Canada's net emissions unchanged and people across Canada vulnerable to the consequences of those emissions. Third, a province's failure to act or refusal to cooperate would in this case have grave consequences for extra-provincial interests. It is uncontroversial that greenhouse gas emissions cause climate change. It is also an uncontested fact that the effects of climate change do not have a direct connection to the source of greenhouse gas emissions. Every province's greenhouse gas emissions contribute to climate change, the consequences of which will be borne extra-provincially, across Canada and around the world. And it is well established that climate change is causing significant environmental, economic and human harm nationally and internationally, with especially high impacts in the Canadian Arctic, in coastal regions and on indigenous peoples. This includes increases in average temperatures and in the frequency and severity of heat waves, extreme weather events like floods and forest fires, significant reductions in sea ice and sea level rises, the spread of life-threatening diseases like Lyme disease and West Nile virus, and threats to the ability of indigenous communities to sustain themselves and maintain their traditional ways of life. Furthermore, I reject the notion that because climate change is an inherently global problem, each individual province's greenhouse gas emissions cause no measurable harm or do not have tangible impacts on other provinces. Each province's emissions are clearly measurable and contribute to climate change. The underlying logic of this argument would apply equally to all individual sources of emissions everywhere, so it must fail. I note that similar arguments have been rejected by courts around the world. In Massachusetts and Environmental Protection Agency, 2007, USSC, for instance, the majority of the United States Supreme Court rejected the federal government's argument that projected increases in other countries' emissions meant that there was no realistic prospect that domestic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions in the United States would mitigate global climate change. The Supreme Court reasoned that a reduction in domestic emissions would slow the pace of global emissions increases, no matter what happens elsewhere. 
Similarly, in the State of the Netherlands, Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate Policy and Stichtinger Agenda 2019 SCN, the Supreme Court of the Netherlands upheld findings of the Hague District Court and the Hague Court of Appeal that every emission of greenhouse gases leads to an increase in the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and thus contributes to the global harms of climate change. The Hague District Court's finding that any anthropogenic greenhouse gas emission, no matter how minor, contributes to hazardous climate change was thus confirmed on appeal. In Gloucester Resources Limited and Minister for Planning, 2019, NSWLEC, a New South Wales court rejected an argument of a coal mining project's proponent that the project's greenhouse gas emissions would not make a meaningful contribution to climate change. The court noted that many courts have recognized that climate change is caused by cumulative emissions from a myriad of individual sources, each proportionally small relative to the global total of greenhouse gas emissions, and will be solved by abatement of the greenhouse gas emissions from these myriad of individual sources. While each province's emissions do contribute to climate change, there is no denying that climate change is an inherently global problem that neither Canada nor any one province acting alone can wholly address. This weighs in favor of a finding of provincial inability. As a global problem, climate change can realistically be addressed only through international efforts. Any province's failure to act threatens Canada's ability to meet its international obligations, which in turn hinders Canada's ability to push for international action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Therefore, a provincial failure to act directly threatens Canada as a whole. This is not to say that Parliament has jurisdiction to implement Canada's treaty obligations, it does not, but simply that the inherently global nature of greenhouse gas emissions and the problem of climate change supports a finding of provincial inability in this case. I am accordingly and persuaded by Justice Huscroft's observation in his dissenting reasons in the Court of Appeal for Ontario that there are many ways to address climate change and the provinces have ample authority to pursue them, whether alone or in partnership with other provinces. The underlying premise of this position is that the provinces will implement sufficient controls on their greenhouse gas emissions, using greenhouse gas pricing or some other mechanism. But in the absence of a federal law binding the provinces, there is nothing whatsoever to protect individual provinces or the country as a whole from the consequences of one province's decision. In exercising its authority to take insufficient action to control greenhouse gases or to take no steps at all, in short, federal action is indispensable, and greenhouse gas pricing in particular is an integral aspect of any scheme to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In my view, the principles underpinning the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility inquiry clearly support a finding that the federal government has jurisdiction over the matter of establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The matter is specific, identifiable and qualitatively different from any provincial matters. As well, federal jurisdiction is necessitated by the province's inability to address the matter as a whole through cooperation, which exposes each province to grave harm that it is unable to prevent. I therefore respectfully disagree with my colleague Justice Brown's view that the requirement of indivisibility is not met in this case. My colleague places great weight on the difficulty of knowing the source and physical location of pollution in Crown Zellerbach, asserting that because no question arises as to physical location in the case at bar, indivisibility cannot be made out. Even if it is assumed that this represents a valid distinction between Crown Zellerbach and the case at bar, Justice Ledane clearly confined this aspect of his reasoning to the matter of marine pollution by the dumping of substances. He did not purport to lay down the only way to determine whether indivisibility is made out. This makes sense. A matter can be of inherent national concern even if it does not relate to something that is difficult to locate. There is no difficulty in determining the location of the national capital region, but the matter in Monroe meets the requirement of indivisibility. 
Likewise, there is no difficulty in identifying the sites of atomic energy generation, but atomic energy, too, is a matter of inherent national concern. In the instant case, the indivisibility of the matter, establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency, is made out, as my application of the two principles underpinning the singleness, distinctiveness, and indivisibility inquiry shows. This is so regardless of the difficulty of locating the source or physical location of greenhouse gas emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions are not the matter in this case, and the difficulty of identifying the source and location of what a matter relates to is not the test for indivisibility. The analogy between this case and Crown Zellerbach is clear. Justice Ledain emphasized the international character of marine pollution. Greenhouse gas emissions represent a truly global pollution problem that demands a coordinated international response. Justice Ledain focused on the unique scientific characteristics of marine pollution that distinguish it from freshwater pollution. Greenhouse gas emissions, like marine pollution, are a precisely identifiable form of pollution that can readily be scientifically distinguished from other atmospheric pollutants. But the case for finding that the matter is of national concern is even stronger here than in Crown Zellerbach. This is true for two reasons. First, in the case at Bar, there is uncontested evidence of grave extraprovincial harm as a result of one province's failure to cooperate. In other words, this is a true interprovincial pollution problem of the highest order. This court's decisions have consistently reflected the view that interprovincial pollution is constitutionally different from local pollution and that it may fall within federal jurisdiction on the basis of the national concern doctrine. Second, the proposed federal matter in the instant case relates only to the risk of non-cooperation that gives rise to this threat of grievous extraprovincial harm. In other words, this matter would empower the federal government to do only what the provinces cannot do to protect themselves from this grave harm, and nothing more. Section C. Scale of Impact At this step of the analysis, as I explained above, the court must determine whether the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction is acceptable having regard to the impact on the interests that will be affected if Parliament is unable to constitutionally address the matter at a national level. This determination is made in light of the jurisdictional consequences of accepting the proposed matter of national concern. I conclude that, while it is true that finding that the federal government has jurisdiction over this matter will have a clear impact on provincial autonomy, the matter's impact on the province's freedom to legislate and on areas of provincial life that fall under provincial heads of power will be limited and will ultimately be outweighed by the impact on interests that would be affected if Parliament were unable to constitutionally address this matter at a national level. I accept that finding that this matter is one of national concern has a clear impact on provincial jurisdiction. It leads to the recognition of a previously unidentified area of double aspect in which the federal law is paramount. Provinces can regulate greenhouse gas pricing from a local perspective, for example, under sections 92 sub 13 and 16 and 92a, but legislation enacted on the basis of these provincial powers would apply concurrently in a field also occupied by a paramount federal law that establishes minimum standards of greenhouse gas price stringency. There is a clear impact on provincial autonomy. Provincial governments and their residents may well wish to pursue greenhouse gas pricing standards lower than those set by the federal government in order to protect the vitality of local industries, or may wish to choose policies that do not involve greenhouse gas pricing. However, I am persuaded that there is a real, and not merely nominal, federal perspective on the fact situation of greenhouse gas pricing. Canada can regulate greenhouse gas pricing from the perspective of addressing the risk of grave extra-provincial and international harm associated with a purely interprovincial approach to greenhouse gas pricing. This is manifestly not the same aspect of the same matter. 
On the contrary, the compelling federal interest is in doing precisely, and only, what the provinces cannot do. Protect themselves from the risk of grave harm if some provinces were to adopt insufficiently stringent greenhouse gas pricing standards. Moreover, the matter's impact on the province's freedom to legislate and on areas of provincial life that would fall under provincial heads of power is qualified and limited. First, the matter's impact on the province's freedom to legislate is minimal. It is important to mention that the issue in this case is not the freedom of the provinces and territories to legislate in relation to greenhouse gas emissions generally. Here, the matter is limited to greenhouse gas pricing of greenhouse gas emissions, a narrow and specific regulatory mechanism. Any legislation that related to non-carbon pricing forms of greenhouse gas regulation, legislation with respect to roadways, building codes, public transit and home heating, for example, would not fall under the matter of national concern. Nor is the freedom of the provinces and territories to legislate in relation to all methods of pricing greenhouse gas emissions at issue. Even where the specific regulatory mechanism of greenhouse gas pricing is concerned, the extent to which the matter interferes with provincial jurisdiction is strictly limited. Under the GGPPA, provinces and territories are free to design and legislate any greenhouse gas pricing system as long as it meets minimum national standards of price stringency. If a province wants to exceed the federal standards, it is free to do so without fear of federal legislation rendering its legislation inoperative, because the federal matter concerns minimum standards, not maximum standards. If a province fails to meet the minimum national standards, the GGPP imposes a backstop pricing system, but only to the extent necessary to remedy the deficiency in provincial regulation in order to address the extra-provincial and international harm that might arise from the province's failure to act or to set sufficiently stringent standards. In Saskatchewan, for example, the provincially designed industrial greenhouse gas pricing scheme applies to many industrial emitters, but Part 2 of the GGPPA applies to electricity generation and natural gas transmission pipelines, the emissions of which Saskatchewan declined to price. The federal matter thus deals with greenhouse gas pricing stringency in a way that relates only to the risk of non-cooperation and the attendant risk of grave extra-provincial harm and has the ascertainable and reasonable limits required by Crowd Zellerbach so as to ensure that provincial jurisdiction is not eroded more than necessary. Second, the matter's impact on areas of provincial life that would generally fall under provincial heads of power is also limited. Although the identified matter of national concern could arguably apply to types of fuel and to industries to which the GGPP does not apply at present, that matter is, crucially, restricted to standards for greenhouse gas pricing stringency. As the majority of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan pointed out, it leaves individual consumers and businesses free to choose how they will respond, or not, to the price signals sent by the marketplace. Indeed, the federal power recognized in this case is significantly less intrusive than the one at issue in Crown Zellerbach, in which, as Justice Lefore noted, the effect of finding that the federal government has jurisdiction over ocean pollution caused by the dumping of waste was to virtually prevent a province from dealing with certain of its own public property without federal consent. Nor does the federal supervisory jurisdiction of the GGPPA increase the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction. As I explained above, the Governor and Council's discretion under the GGPPA is limited by the purpose of the statute, by specific guidelines set out in it and by administrative law principles. The Governor and Council does not have an unfettered discretion to determine whether a provincial greenhouse gas pricing system is desirable, but is confined to determining whether it meets results-based standards. Moreover, the Governor and Council's decision-making role in the GGPP is an incident of the flexibility the provinces retain in relation to greenhouse gas pricing within their borders. 
if provincial pricing systems are to be taken into account and federal intervention is to be limited to remedying deficiencies in those systems. The GGPPA must include a mechanism for determining whether provincial pricing systems meet federal standards. It would not be feasible for the statute itself to indicate which provincial pricing systems meet federal standards, as provincial pricing schemes and policies frequently change. The Governor and Council's decision-making role thus seems to be an incident of a flexible model designed to preserve provincial regulation. Furthermore, the discretion of the Governor and Council is necessary in order to ensure that some provinces do not subordinate or unduly burden the other provinces through their unilateral choice of standards. Indeed, the design of the GGPPA to ensure provincial flexibility is consistent with the 2018 Securities Reference. In that case, the proposed law also involved a supervisory aspect, given that the federal regulators' intervention was contingent upon there being a risk that slips through the cracks of a provincial scheme that posed a threat to the Canadian economy. The court found that this feature weighed in favor of constitutionality because the statute was a carefully tailored response to this provincial incapacity. In summary, although the matter has a clear impact on provincial jurisdiction, its impact on the province's freedom to legislate and on areas of provincial life that would fall under provincial heads of power is qualified and limited. On the whole, I am of the view that the scale of impact of this matter of national concern on provincial jurisdiction is reconcilable with the fundamental distribution of legislative power under the Constitution. The GGPP puts a Canada-wide price on carbon pollution. Emitting provinces retain the ability to legislate, without any federal supervision, in relation to all methods of regulating greenhouse gas emissions that do not involve pricing. They are free to design any greenhouse gas pricing system they choose as long as they meet the federal government's outcome-based targets. The result of the GGPPA is therefore not to limit the province's freedom to legislate, but to partially limit their ability to refrain from legislating pricing mechanisms or to legislate mechanisms that are less stringent than would be needed in order to meet the national targets. Although this restriction may interfere with a province's preferred balance between economic and environmental considerations, it is necessary to consider the interests that would be harmed, owing to irreversible consequences for the environment, for human health and safety and for the economy, if Parliament were unable to constitutionally address the matter at a national level. This irreversible harm would be felt across the country and would be borne disproportionately by vulnerable communities and regions, with profound effects on Indigenous peoples, on the Canadian Arctic and on Canada's coastal regions. In my view, the impact on those interests justifies the limited constitutional impact on provincial jurisdiction. Section D. Conclusion on the National Concern Doctrine In conclusion, the GGPP is inter vires Parliament on the basis of the National Concern Doctrine. Canada has adduced evidence that shows that the proposed matter of establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is of clear concern to Canada as a whole and that the two principles underpinning the singleness, distinctiveness and indivisibility inquiry are satisfied. Considering the impact on the interests that would be affected if Canada were unable to address this matter at a national level, the matter's scale of impact on provincial jurisdiction is reconcilable with the division of powers. I wish to emphasize that nothing about this conclusion flows inevitably from the fact that this matter of national concern involves a minimum national standard. My colleague Justice Brown warns that my analysis opens the floodgates to federal minimum national standards in all areas of provincial jurisdiction. Respectfully, this concern is entirely misplaced. As can be seen from the foregoing reasons, the test for finding that a matter is of national concern is an exacting one. Canada must establish not just that the matter is of concern to Canada as a whole, but also that it is specific and identifiable and is qualitatively different from matters of provincial concern, and that federal jurisdiction is necessitated by provincial inability to deal with the matter. 
Each of these requirements, as well as the final scale of impact analysis, represents a meaningful barrier to the acceptance of any matter of national concern that might be proposed in the future. This court's decision in Schneider demonstrates that where one province's failure to deal with health care will not endanger the interests of another province, the national concern doctrine cannot apply. This central insight from Schneider has application beyond the field of health care, and in my view precludes the application of the national concern doctrine to many of the fields my colleague suggests would be vulnerable to federal encroachment as a result of the case at bar. Many fields my colleague points to are ones in which the effects of one province's approach are in fact primarily felt in that province only. I note as well that this court recently emphasized that education is an area of exclusive provincial jurisdiction that has a uniquely interprovincial character. Schneider itself confirmed that the view that the general jurisdiction over health matters is provincial has prevailed and is now not seriously questioned. Moreover, nothing in these reasons should be understood to diminish the significant place of Section 92 sub 13, the provincial power over property and civil rights, in the Canadian constitutional order. Historically and jurisprudentially, it is well known that this head of power serves as a means to accommodate regional and cultural diversity in law, and that it is of particular importance in this regard to the province of Quebec. As a result, this court has continued to affirm that this provincial power should be carefully protected. In light of this, the rigorous national concern test represents a meaningful constraint on federal power. Even in a case in which a matter can be connected to climate change, a truly global pollution problem with grave extra-provincial consequences, I emphasize that much of the reasoning in this decision turns on the evidence before the court with respect to greenhouse gas pricing itself. The critical value of greenhouse gas pricing as a tool for the mitigation of climate change, its nature as a distinct and limited regulatory mechanism, how it operates across the economy, and the risk of carbon leakage. Furthermore, finding that this matter is of national concern is appropriate only because the matter amounts to a real, and compelling, federal perspective on greenhouse gas pricing, focused on addressing only the well-established risk of grave extra-provincial harm, and doing so in a way that has a qualified and limited impact on provincial jurisdiction. Part 7. Validity of the levies as regulatory charges. Finally, I must address Ontario's argument that the fuel and excess emission charges imposed by the GGPPA do not have a sufficient nexus with the regulatory scheme to be considered constitutionally valid regulatory charges. To be a regulatory charge, as opposed to a tax, a governmental levy with the characteristics of a tax must be connected to a regulatory scheme. In West Bank, Justice Gontier set out a two-step approach for determining whether a governmental levy is connected to a regulatory scheme. The first step is to identify the existence of a relevant regulatory scheme. If such a scheme is found to exist, the second step is to establish a relationship between the charge and the scheme itself. Ontario does not dispute that the GGPPA creates a regulatory scheme. Its argument instead focuses on the second step of the West Bank First Nation and British Columbia Hydro and Power Authority 1999, SCC, analysis, determining whether the levy has a sufficient nexus with the regulatory scheme. The GGPPA does not require that revenues collected under Parts 1 and 2 be expended in a manner connected to the regulatory purpose of the GGPPA. Ontario argues that this undermines the levy's characterization as regulatory charges. In its view, the nexus requirement cannot be met solely by showing that the regulatory purpose of a charge is to influence behavior. It submits that, for there to be a nexus with the regulatory scheme, the revenues that are collected must be used to recover the cost of the scheme or be spent in a manner connected to a particular regulatory purpose, and that a conclusion to the contrary would undermine the no taxation without representation principle that underlies section 53 of the Constitution. It is well established that influencing behavior is a valid purpose for a regulatory charge. 
As Justice Rothstein put it in 620 Cannot Limited and Canada, Attorney General, 2008, SCC, a regulatory charge may be intended to alter individual behavior, in which case the fee may be set at a level designed to prescribe, prohibit or lend preference to a behavior. Two examples Justice Gonchier mentioned in West Bank were that a per ton charge on landfill waste may be levied to discourage the production of waste and that a deposit refund charge on bottles may encourage recycling of glass or plastic bottles. However, the case law on the required nexus in the West Bank framework for a behavior modifying charge is not settled. In 620 Cannot, the court explicitly left the question whether the costs of the regulatory scheme are a limit on the fee revenue generated, where the purpose of the regulatory charge is to prescribe, prohibit or lend preference to certain conduct, for another day. I agree with Chief Justice Strathis that regulatory charges need not reflect the cost of the scheme. As contemplated in 620 Cannot, the amount of a regulatory charge whose purpose is to alter behavior is set at a level designed to prescribe, prohibit, or lend preference to a behavior. Canada rightly observes that limiting such a charge to the recovery of costs would be incompatible with the design of a scheme of this nature, nor must the revenues that are collected be used to further the purposes of the regulatory scheme. Rather, as Justice Gontier suggested in West Bank, the required nexus with the scheme will exist where the charges themselves have a regulatory purpose where, as in the instant case, the charge itself is a regulatory mechanism that promotes compliance with the scheme or furthers its objective, the nexus between the scheme and the levy inheres in the charge itself. This court's decision in Allard Contractors Limited and Coquitlam, District, 1993, SCC, is of no assistance to Ontario. Ontario seizes on an aspect of Allard that Justice Yako Bucci specifically framed as an effort to determine the scope of Section 92 sub 9 rather than to define taxation as such. The provincial licensing power under Section 92 sub 9 raised specific questions about its interplay with the Section 92 sub 2 limitation on provincial taxation to direct, as opposed to indirect, taxation, as well as about its relationship to other provincial heads of power. It had been argued that to give Section 92 sub 9 a meaning independent of the other provincial heads of power, it ought not to be limited to raising money to support a regulatory scheme. In that context, very different from the one in the case at bar, Justice Yakobucci remarked in Obiter that a finding that there was a power of indirect taxation in Section 92 sub 9 extending substantially beyond regulatory costs could have the more serious consequence of rendering Section 92 sub 2 meaningless. It was unnecessary to decide the point, however, because the levy in Allard was intended only to cover the costs of the regulatory scheme. It does not follow from Allard that a finding that there is a nexus with the regulatory scheme where the levy is a regulatory mechanism would, as Ontario asserts, render Section 53 meaningless. Section 53 codifies the principle of no taxation without representation by requiring any bill that imposes a tax to originate with the legislature. Section 53 applies expressly to taxation. The West Bank approach remains adequate for the purpose of distinguishing between taxes and regulatory charges in order to determine whether Section 53 applies. Holding that the required nexus can be found to exist by establishing that the charge itself is a regulatory mechanism does not open the door to disguised taxation. Instead, in every case, the court must scrutinize the scheme in order to identify the primary purpose of the levy on the basis of West Bank. An attempt to circumvent Section 53 by disguising a tax as a regulatory charge without a sufficient nexus to a regulatory scheme would be colorable. In the instant case, there is ample evidence that the fuel and excess emission charges imposed by Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPP have a regulatory purpose. Ontario does not assert, nor would such an assertion be supportable, that the levies in this case amount to disguised taxation. The GGPP as a whole is directed to establishing minimum national standards of greenhouse gas price stringency to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, 
not to the generation of revenue. As Chief Justice Richards aptly observed, the GGPP could fully accomplish its objectives without raising assent. This is true of both Part 1 and Part 2. The levies imposed by Parts 1 and 2 of the GGPP cannot be characterized as taxes. Rather, they are regulatory charges whose purpose is to advance the GGPPA's regulatory purpose by altering behavior. The levies are constitutionally valid regulatory charges. Part 8. A final matter. In this case, I have identified the pith and substance of the GGPPA having regard to the statute and the regulations in force at the time of these appeals. My colleague Justice Rowe has taken this opportunity to propose a methodology for assessing the constitutionality of regulations made under the GGPPA. Although the underlying premise of my colleague's comments, that regulations made pursuant to an enabling statute must be consistent with the division of powers and further the purpose of the statute, is uncontroversial, his speculative concern that such regulations could be used to further industrial favoritism is neither necessary nor desirable. I would leave the matter of the validity of regulations under the GGPPA for a future case should the issue arise. It is not this court's role to express opinions about the substance, arguments or merits of future challenges. Part 9. Conclusion. In conclusion, I would answer the reference questions in the negative. The Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act is constitutional. Accordingly, the Attorney General of Saskatchewan's appeal is dismissed, the Attorney General of Ontario's appeal is dismissed, and the Attorney General of British Columbia's appeal is allowed. Appeals of the Attorney General of Saskatchewan and of the Attorney General of Ontario dismissed and appeal of the Attorney General of British Columbia allowed. Justice Cote dissenting in part and Justices Brown and Roe dissenting, 